Welcome to The Big Picture, a show that takes a deep dive into the political landscape of not only America, but right here in our own backyard of Illinois. It's showtime, folks. The Big Picture is on WCPT 820. And now, here's your host, Edwin Eisentrath. Happy New Year, everybody. Um, It's a cold, snowy day up here in the upper Midwest. It's also a very serious day. It's an anniversary. Three years. Wow. Three years ago today, Donald Trump summoned the mob, assembled the mob, and lit the fuse of insurrection. That was the conclusion of the bipartisan January 6th committee that examined the evidence. It's also the conclusion of millions of Americans who watched that terrible day in horror. And none, none of the nonsense, the revision of history, the subsequent lies can whitewash what happened. It was a coup. Militias like the Proud Boys, armed thugs that Mr. Trump had previously told to stand by, stormed the Capitol. People died. They tried to capture and hang the vice president. They hunted for Speaker Pelosi. Their goal was to disrupt the procedure where the election would be certified. That attack, that attempted coup by a sitting president failed. But we have to remember what it was. And it failed. And after it failed, after the battle Congress reconvened and certified the vote. Two weeks later, Joe Biden took the oath of office and began to repair the nation. He and what was then a Democratic Congress passed an infrastructure bill promised by the last guys they couldn't do it. The Inflation Reduction Act, the Chips and Science Act, the American Rescue Plan, lots of legislation. And the results The results, three years later, the strongest job growth in American history, with more than 11 million new jobs created and record low unemployment. Millions of Americans are paying less for health insurance. And, you know, the decades, um, uh, decades old accelerating uh, income gap between workers and the fabulously wealthy, that's shrinking. Inflation is down. Murder rates are down. Nearly 80% of Americans have been vaccinated. So this year's big COVID wave isn't leading to the higher death rates that it did during the pandemic. America is now leading the world in the fight on climate change. In three years, I could go on. But what is beyond doubt, beyond question, right, is that we are not only better off than we were four years ago, we're beginning to address longstanding problems uh, in the economy, in the environment, in our own social contract. What's been the Republican response to all this? They've had three years to think about it. What's been their response? Rage and a focus on retribution and more lies. They, They don't even talk about policy and governance. Instead, they spend their time telling the country through their captured media that Democrats are anti-American, anti-Christian, and determined to destroy the nation. They say Democrats must be stopped by any means, and they have fully embraced the leader of the 2020 coup in the hope that he can be returned to power. This is disgusting. 
And by the way, what does it mean that Democrats must be stopped at at all costs? Well, in Pennsylvania, the GOP is fighting um, to invalidate mail-in ballots that are received if the voter, you know, forgot to put the date on the envelope. In their view, it doesn't matter if the ballot is secure, if it arrives on time, if it's otherwise in perfect order. Twice the Pennsylvania courts have rejected this view, arguing that, you know what, the right to vote is big enough not to be forfeited by someone who missed the date part of the form. But the U.S. Supreme Court voided those rulings and litigation continues. In New York, the GOP is in court again, hoping to overturn that state's uh, vote by mail laws. Over and over in GOP-controlled states, there are increasing restrictions on voting. It's now common. <clears throat> Nor, by the way, is stopping um, the Democrats only about voting. They want voting not to matter. In Wisconsin, the GOP fought every effort to undo the most radical gerrymander in the country, one that robbed voters of any real power in elections. They even threatened to annul just annul an election they lost for the state Supreme Court um, uh, to make their point. In Tennessee, they took two duly elected uh, state legislatures and threw them out of the legislature because, I don't know, there were black men who dared to stand up for sensible gun laws. They threw them out. Well, we fought back on those. We fought their back in the legislature and Supreme Court justice is still there in Wisconsin, and we have a chance to uh, overturn that gerrymander now. But look, still, it isn't enough for the Republicans to stop people from voting and to stop voting from mattering. They have united in an effort to punish the majority of Americans, whom they now just all lump together and call the libs. That means banning abortions, banning books. It means giving more tax cuts to the wealthiest while increasing the burdens on working people. It means using the force of government to stop efforts of private companies to successfully diversify their workforce. It means launching baseless impeachment investigations and phony oversight hearings. And as bad as what they're doing is, as bad as it is, what they haven't done is even more appalling. They have had multiple opportunities, these Republicans, off ramps where they could have walked away from Mr. Trump, that would be dictator. Well, when they found he was liable for rape, they could have walked away. When his company was found to have falsified property valuations to cheat both investors and the IRS, they could have walked away. Or, or when Mr. Trump was indicted for misuse of classified documents, something they railed about in the past. No, we don't care. We don't care. We're, gonna, we're not going to take that off ramp either. We're going to stick with our friend. Or, or, or how about when he was indicted for trying to overturn the election? Nope. They missed each and every opportunity to walk for the man away from this man who promises to be a dictator on day one. Instead, they not only embraced him, but they purged their ranks of any who wouldn't bow down. Boy, this is not um, consonant with the best in American history. And you know what? They failed also to use the governing powers they do have to address the problems they complain most about. Immigration tops the list. Congress hasn't updated our immigration laws. They prefer instead to grandstand at the border. We need them to pass laws. They stand in the way of that. 
This Republican House has passed fewer bills than any Congress since 1932. They haven't passed the budgets needed to keep the government open. They they haven't even passed a farm bill. How hard is that? Three years ago, America overcame an attempted coup. Since then, one party, supported by the majority of Americans, has made the country better. The other party has rallied around the now-indicted coup plotters, and they hope to finish the job they failed at at January 6th. This year, this year is the year that we put an end to that finally. We cannot let them succeed. All right, we are going to take a break. When we come back, I have a great show planned for you, um, and it's the beginning of what I expect to be a phenomenal year. Don't go away. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendrath on WCPT 820. Okay, um, that uh, bit of a rant from me at the beginning of this show. Um, yeah, I'm not apologizing for it. I, I'm going to double down on it in the coming months. Uh, this is a serious year. And I think you guys who are listening are smart enough and serious enough and thoughtful enough for conversations that, you know, are not name calling, but are somewhat complicated. And that's why I wanted my first guest this year to be Jennifer Bircher, who you you met last year with me. She writes about education and politics. She's the author of A Wolf at the Schoolhouse Door, The Dismantling of Public Education and the Future of School. She has a podcast, Have You Heard? It's about education policy. She uh, um, teaches at both Boston College and UMass UMass and Amherst. Um, and, and I, you know, I think education is core to our democracy. We're going to talk about that a little bit. Jennifer, welcome back. Happy New Year. Uh, thanks so much. And I'm so flattered and honored to be your first guest of 2024. What a great choice. Thank you. I think it is a good choice. <laughs> <laughs> I want to be um, honest and transparent about where I'm coming from with you, because this is a show about politics and democracy, not about education policy. But, you know, I have, have read John Dewey. I think education and democracy are deeply connected. So I think it's important we talk about schools and their role in society and how education and c- citizenship are related. Um, but I don't think we can have that discussion first without talking about how politics is using education for purposes unrelated to student growth. Um, and I know you've looked at this a lot. I, you know, I, I think reality has a habit of intervening in every fantasy, even if it takes a while. And this year, reality intervened a little bit on the Republican uh, 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 culture war fantasy in our schools. I mean, I think they took advantage of the passions of COVID during the shutdowns um, where mistakes were clearly made. Right. But but the right made teachers their enemy. Then they created organizations like Moms for Liberty to lead the fight. Then they they saddled up and rode the horse straight into the ground in 2023 when they lost about every school board race they contested. (laughs) Yeah. and Moms for Liberty turned out to be Moms for Libertines. Um, has, the, has, the, has the culture war at least started to run its course? I, you know, I think it's really tempting to look at the election results. And you're only exaggerating slightly about just how poorly these candidates fared. 
mm-hmm. it's really important to it, to look at those results in the larger context. And on the one hand, candidates fared really poorly. And on the other hand, this stuff continues to really animate the Republican base. And so if you go to a Trump rally, some of the loudest applause lines that he gets are for education-related lines. And, you know, talking about the fact that he will immediately cut federal funding to any school that teaches, quote unquote, critical race theory, um, that, you know, his his pledge to to go after schools and and teachers that that are foisting what he calls gender ideology on kids. And and finally, you know, like he loves to talk about how our schools have basically been taken over by pink haired Marxists. And when he talks that way, his base goes crazy. And as long as that is the case, you're going to continue to see all sorts of candidates running on this stuff. And so it creates this kind of interesting tension where the the like the smart strategic folks recognize that they are losing race after race when they present these issues to an electorate that goes beyond primary voters. But, you know, you have uh, you have people running for office who are courting those primary voters right now. And I'll give you an example. If you look at a state like Missouri, just over the border from you, there, you know, legislators are talking about their priorities for the year and they're admitting, you know, maybe maybe we went a little too far last year with our obsessive focus on gay and trans kids. You know, maybe that was a mistake. And, you know, this year we're going to be more grown up and, and we're going to uh, we're going to do you know, we're going to focus more on, on stuff that voters actually care about. But then you have the folks who are running for office, like the, there's a candidate, a senator who is running for governor in 2024. We uh, we first caught sight of him on social media. He was taking a flamethrower, a literal flamethrower yeah. to what he called the woke agenda. Well, one of his campaign pledges is to eliminate the state Department of Education in Missouri, um, because he argues that it's it's basically become an agency tasked with indoctrinating kids. Now, 75 percent of the people who work for that department work with handicapped, blind and deaf students like that's who he's talking about. Uh, getting rid of. So I, I think that that even though there's going to be a temptation among people who have looked at those election results to to say, folks, we need to we need to drop some of the culture war stuff. I don't think it's going anywhere. So that's really interesting. I mean, they're they're <clears throat> this culture war side this they're indoctrinating our kids <clears throat> in, this is this is not uh, only about questions of gender identity. The biggest thing they they worry about is history, where they they are trying to rewrite it. I mean, this is January sixth, for God's sake. They've spent three years trying to rewrite the history of that day to lie about what happened. But they've also embraced the so-called 1776 project, which is a completely dishonest whitewashing of American history, which um, which they're pushing in the schools. And if people don't buy that version of history, we end up hearing exactly the, these, these cries at these rallies that, that schools are 
indoctrinating kids. And, and I guess if you fight somebody else's indoctrination, I guess you're guilty of some other kind of indoctrination. That's their view. Well, so I think that that's a really interesting point. And one of the things, one of the reasons why I am absolutely convinced that this stuff isn't going anywhere is that on virtually every issue, an enormous gulf has opened up between the way that young people see the world and the way that adults see the world, especially older Americans. And so by every measure, whether it's things like, you know, be their acceptance of, of LGBTQ Americans or the belief that, that the United States needs a much more activist government when it comes to things like making health care and college affordable, by, you know, by every measure, the kids are more progressive than their parents and other adults. And so that is what is driving a lot of this. And so you have these legislators working in tandem with with policymakers who think, well, if we can somehow change, if we can, you know, present a different version of history, if we can whitewash it, if we can uh, take out, strip out the parts of the curriculum that have kids working together to address a problem, somehow they're going to reverse engineer the kids and make them more conservative. I I don't see this happening. And, and then, you know, the other part of this that I think really has changed and become much more apparent in the three years since we started hearing about things like the 1776 project is that there's a much more open attempt among conservatives to move kids out of public schools or government schools, as they call them, and into private religious schools, that Christian education is actually the goal. So I I did. That's on my list of things to talk to you about. Um, um, and we can talk about that now. I got something else I'll come back to. So, so um, it's not just the, I mean, it's related to the culture war, but there's a big greed component to this too, I think. And, and that's the whole privatization movement. Some of it, I think a big chunk, as you say, is to Christian schools and this, this, now we have a Christian public school that's going to be tested right up to the Supreme Court. You should talk about that. But the right-wing attack on public schools is is an institutional attack. Let's just privatize the whole thing. And if that means that uh, religious schools are where kids go, that's great. But if they go to a strip mall in Arizona to, you know, something that just somebody sets up and calls it a school, it's up on, you know, buyer beware. Right. Yeah. I mean, that like so that is certainly a piece of this. You know, we spend an enormous amount of money on public education. It's the largest single line item in most state budgets. Um, There's been some great journalism lately about how how much of the money in these voucher programs that have been enacted in one state after another is really being enacted to prop is going to prop up failing church schools, especially Catholic schools. So Mm -hmm. that's part of it, right? That there are a lot of of folks who look at that money and think, I'd like a piece of it. But I think the larger conflict is really, it's really ideological. And the, the, you know, they, they look at the demographics. They look at that polling data that I was just describing. And they Mm -hmm. realize that they are, you know, they, they paint this 
as a battle for the souls of the kids of America, and they realize that they're losing. And that somehow, you know, if they can just, you know, if they can get the kids into conservative Christian schools, schools that don't have to accept gay kids, Kids who don't have to, uh, schools that don't have to accept kids whose parents aren't married, um, uh, schools that can charge parents money um, above and beyond the cost of the voucher. They think that they can slow down the pace of cultural change, but also, you know, mint more conservative voters. That's a lot of what it's about. And then you know, there's also a piece of it that's just it's it's straight out of the post Brown versus Board of Education era. And that's the monumental Supreme Court case that said that school segregation is no longer going to be permissible. And so you started to see these southern states say, well, if the courts are going to insist that schools of different races, uh, kids of different races have to attend school together, we're going to do anything we can to get out from under the reach of the courts. We're going to send kids to private religious schools. And that's, that is so much what we see happening right now. Yeah, it's straight out of the 1650s and the fight <laughs> against the Enlightenment. Well, you know, well, let's just take dogma from God and forget everything else. And if you want to teach something else, well, that's a danger to the danger to the established order. Let's um, we should talk about that, that Catholic charter school, because I think this is a story we're going to be hearing a lot about in 2024. And yep. your listeners might not have heard about it. So charter schools are have been around since the 90s. They are publicly funded, privately managed. And the thinking was that that these, you know, independent schools would, you know, they would function with less, what you know, what people often refer to uh, deriding is red tape and that by by freeing up teachers and administrators uh, a thousand flowers would bloom there would be all sorts of innovation and and as a result student achievement would would rise and we could have we could do a whole show on what has actually happened with that respect but I think people on the right very smartly saw that this was also an opportunity to realize one of their priorities which is taxpayer-funded religious education. And so over the last couple of years, conservatives in Oklahoma got very excited and they uh, got permission to open up a publicly funded Catholic charter school. And this charter school will, uh, it will be organized along the tenets of the, the uh, Catholic church. Um, people who work there, both the uh, students who attend the school and the people who work at the school are expected to follow Catholic tenets. So um, you can't, you know, you can't be gay. Um, and then the other thing that I think is really concerning about it is that everyone, if you read through the the proposal that the the archdiocese submitted for this school, they plan on treating every person who works at the school as a minister. What does that mean? That means that because of a trend in Supreme Court cases, those employees are basically going to be exempt from huge swaths of labor law. And so you can start to see where this is going. 
that, you know, like uh, you have a bipartisan effort to create schools, public, a public-private partnership. Here we are 30 years later, and the religious right very smartly sees this as an opportunity to get rid of all kinds of other things it doesn't like, including labor law. Yeah, I, my own evolution on charter schools has uh, been dramatic. I, in the 90s, I thought it was a wonderful idea. And I had been a public school teacher in Chicago. And I thought, wow, if we could demonstrate somehow that there's a way to have successful public schools out of this um, dysfunctional Board of Ed that we had, the Board of Ed would learn and it would get better. Um, but the... Um, uh, the teachers union and the, and the forces on the left fought it. And as you say, on the right, they figured out how to cheat with it. Um, and now uh, uh, it, it's only being abused. I, I just I think it's a, 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 a unbalanced, dangerous now. The, I think the other important thing to keep in mind is that we are we are seeing a big push. Um, uh, among the right, but it goes beyond that, you know, state attorney generals, like all, all kinds of influential folks to reclassify charter schools as private. And, and you think about the, like, if we went around Chicago, we would notice that, uh, that most charter schools have public in their names, right? That mm -hmm. they're public charter schools. And the understanding is that they're publicly funded. And in exchange for that funding, they are, um, there is all sorts of oversight. There are accountability rules. That's why we're always hearing about their, their test scores. But there is a, a case that has been, um, it made it almost to the Supreme Court last year. This was a, a case that came out of North Carolina where um, a charter school had strict a strict dress code that girls had to wear skirts, boys had to wear pants, and that there was an, an effort to pretty much, you know, teach kids rules of chivalry. And so the girls were fragile vessels, and that's why they had to wear skirts. A couple of parents said, you know what, we, like, this is supposed to be a public school. This seemed, why are you in Enforcing this outdated code of behavior, and so the it, it, it courts kept bouncing it around. But the argument that conservatives were making was that, um, you know what? Actually, these schools are not public; they're private. And so chunks of the Fourteenth Amendment, the Equal Protection Rules, won't apply to them. And so we're, you know, we're looking at a situation where, in addition to things like religious charter schools. We could see states beginning to enact policies that basically declare charter schools as private as well. And that, you know, that, that can mean that in states like Florida and Arizona, that you're suddenly looking at a third up to, you know, a half of the, the, your public school kids suddenly in a sector that's defined as private with none of the rights that extend to kids in public schools. That's really concerning. And, and um, it's terrifying. There are also schools where um, where the curriculum is being adjusted to include. I mean, I've looked at those videos from PragerU. PragerU, for those who are listening, is not an accredited university, but it calls itself PragerU. They're a propaganda shop, and they and their videos are appalling. Basically, cartoon versions of the debunked 1776 Commission's view of American history. Total right-wing fantasy. But 
Jennifer, these are being now distributed in schools. How is that possible? Well, I think it's really important to acknowledge that what we're seeing are a lot of press releases from PragerU and from firebrand education policy folks. I'm thinking of somebody like a Ryan Walters in Oklahoma. Yeah. Um, he, you know, he's a big fan of filming. He likes to film incendiary videos of himself, you know, while he drives his car, you know, warning against teachers indoctrinating and turning kids transgender. So even though you're seeing a lot of headlines, there's very little evidence that this stuff is actually making its way into schools. And I think it's important to to think about that a little bit. Like why, you know, why are they making such a big deal about this stuff if teachers aren't actually using it, right? Like there, it's not, you can't find, there aren't places where teachers are being required to show PragerU videos. And what my, uh, my co-author and podcast co-host, education historian Jack Schneider and I have argued, is that the real goal here is to paint a picture of public education in this country is something we're so hopelessly divided over that it's no longer possible to have to really like go to school together. Right. That like you're a conservative. And so that means that you want to go someplace where you can watch PragerU videos. I'm a liberal. That means that, you know, I want my kids going to someplace where they're required to read the 1619 project. So actually, like the the larger effort here is to sort of to sow distrust. And so, like, think about, you know, think about what, like, what happens when, and anytime a liberal reads a headline like that, you know, PragerU videos now being shown in Florida schools, they'll, you'll see people, you know, sharing on the site that used to be known as Twitter or on Facebook, you know, um, I'm like, I will not consent to having my kids watch these videos. Like, that's exactly the point, right? To paint this picture that that every aspect of what our schools do is is being fought over and that really the best we can do is just go our separate ways. Wow. I mean, if we go our separate <laughs> ways in school, we go our separate ways as a nation. Um, that, that's right. And that's think about like here you are. It's the start. We're we're recording this on the anniversary of January 6th, an event that like no other demonstrates the extent to which we have gone our separate ways as a nation. Now, imagine that in every aspect of American public education, that that split is reaffirmed and deepened. Imagine what our future would be like. It's It's really scary. Yeah, I'm not smart enough to do that in real time. You have just given me homework for the rest of the week because this is the implications of this are are um, many and varied for sure, and none of them very good. Yeah, I think um, I, I think that you're absolutely right, and the the really what I take so much hope from is that the reason that these culture war candidates have fared so poorly in election cycle after election cycle is that American parents do not want to see their schools treated in this political manner, manner, right? Like that, that's what they're rejecting. 
And, and so that presents a challenge for those of us who might be trying to make, say, the progressive case for public education. We have to learn to talk about the importance of, of education that, that's paid for by taxpayers and, and comes with democratic oversight. We have to make the case for it in a way that doesn't politicize it, because if we end up politicizing it, we walk right into that trap that the Prager you folks want us to walk into. Yeah, I am 100 percent with you on that. And I think that's a lesson for many aspects of our political fight this year, that um, this isn't a left right policy fight. It is a we're still one country. We do have a shared set of facts. And um, just because one group is pretending that we don't doesn't make it true. And I'm not going to I'm not going to prove them true by retreating to the opposite corner. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And and I think it's it's really heartening that you know when you actually have the opportunity to to talk to say conservative parents who might be really concerned about something like critical race theory or gender ideology and you actually get them to talk about what they'd like to see schools do you immediately see all kinds of overlap and so that's why i think it's so important to pay attention to these issues. You mentioned at the top of the segment that, you know, like on the one hand, this is really, you know, you, you think of your show as being about politics and I'm somebody who focuses on education. I think these community conversations and state level conversations really represent an opening for us to, to move folks in a way that a lot of other issues simply don't. They're the glue that holds us together. Absolutely. This is where parents and, and neighbors come together and talk about what's most important to them. I mean, and if you actually, if, if you if you look, if you you know, you can look at communities that have gone through these bitter election cycles, where say you know, like a slate of parents' rights activists, take back our schools activists, um, end up losing. And, and inevitably, cycle after cycle, you'll see that the candidates who are winning are winning because they're painting uh, a broader, more inclusive, more positive vision of not just what they want the schools to look like, but what they want the community to look like. And yeah. so, you know, as much attention as the, you know, the Moms for Liberty and Moms for Libertines, as you called them, as much attention as they've gotten over the last few years, I think it's actually a lot more important to be focused on communities where those messages have gone down in flames and ask, you know, what can we learn from those places? It's so interesting because I've had the I've had a very similar conversation with people about the Supreme Court. When I asked people um, on the left, if they had the choice would they just appoint a left-leaning version of Sam Alito? And they are repulsed by the question. They say, no, it, it, it isn't about we have different policy choices. It's about somebody has to be focused on jurisprudence, on the way the law works, on, on uh, 
respect for precedent. The, the, the jurisprudential way of acting is not to politicize the court. So I don't want to put in a left-wing politicizer of the court to counter a right one. That just is his path to nowhere. And you're saying the exact same thing about school boards. They have a different job. Their job isn't politics. Their job is what's the best way we can come together and think about raising our kids in a democracy. That, so it's it's so true. And and the more the more polarized we get and the more you know tempting it is to to view every single issue through a starkly partisan lens, the you know, the more tempting it is. You know, I saw you know someone, a writer who I think really highly of wrote a, a piece encouraging members of Democratic Socialists of America to run for school board. And my heart just sank when Oops. I saw that because I thought, like, <laughs> that is absolutely a recipe how for disaster. Yeah. That's, how, that's how we lose. Yeah. I mean, I, I the, 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 in your head, it's so hard not to it's hard. It's so easy to make the mistake. Um, I do not believe America is more divided than it ever was. I really don't believe that. One political party has radicalized dramatically, you know, and Donald Trump doesn't look like George W. Bush, who didn't look like his father, who looked like nothing, you know, like Nixon. Um, um, Joe Biden looks like, you know, it could be any of a long line of Democrats. Democrats haven't moved so far. The Republicans have really radicalized. And and. Um, so it looks like we're more polarized than we are. And I don't think we're more divided than when, oh, I don't know, we had separate fountains by race in America mm -hmm. or when women were banned from most professions. I think we are less divided in some fundamental and, and big ways. Um, and we don't talk about that much because we have a political party that gets all the news that's been radicalized. That, I think that's a really interesting way to think about things because you know, we've now been through repeated election cycles where the results end up being sort of radically at odds with the story we keep being told. And that yep. is that, you know, Republicans are ascendant, um, culture war issues are attracting people across party lines. And and so we've had, you know, like multiple states where I think people would say, oh, you know, abortion ended up being uh, like an, an issue that really motivated people. But I actually think that education has ended up being, you know, an, an issue that has been just as important, um, partly because of the, you know, that that really after Glenn Youngkin's surprise win in Virginia, that really became an issue that Republicans rallied around. But, you know, like again and again, we've seen voters step up and say, you know what, we don't we're not going to go along with this vision of the world in which, you know, we're we're not just divided, but the you know you're going to take us back in time right like the like they're sort of insisting upon uh, a normalcy and you know and and while abortion has been a big part of that i think the one of the big questions for 2024 is the extent to which education and the efforts to politicize it dismantle it and and really uh, you know Christianize it. That's not even a word. Is whether those things are going to to motivate voters in the form of a backlash? Yeah, I mean, it, it, again, counter 
intuitive because of the language the right wing uses. But really, whether you're talking about abortion or you're talking about their agenda in schools, um, you're talking about massive, radical government action, government overreach, um, not something conservative by any measure, but really um, dismantling systems, re, uh, rebuilding them along radical lines. This is the backlash that I saw in the last couple of elections are like this too politics is too big. It shouldn't be about everything. I mean, that, that's not who we are. And I think that's what is being rejected. I think, you know, I think the other part of this is that that <laughs> voters have never had the opportunity to weigh in on these enormous and radical school privatization plans that that so many states have enacted. So we now have 10 states that have enacted either universal or close to universal voucher programs. And that means that states now, mostly red states, now pick up the tab for parents who were already sending their kids to private, usually religious schools. Um, so, you know, whatever voucher programs have gone on the ballot, they lose. And so as a result, these states don't put them on the ballot anymore. Well, now, now we see all these places where the policies are on the books and they're turning out to be enormously expensive at the same time that these states have also cut taxes on their wealthiest residents. So that means that within the next election cycle, the bill is going to come due. So in Arizona, for example, their voucher program um, is on track to cost a billion dollars a year. But they've also just implemented a huge tax cut on wealthiest residents. So suddenly they're looking at a big hole in their in their budget. You know, where where are those funds going to come from? And so I think that that conversations that had been abstract are going to become very real and that that voters are going to be you know, like in the past. This has never played out well. Right. Like when when voters start, when parents in particular start to feel Feel the effect of budget cuts in their own kids' lives, swelling class sizes, school closures, uh, uh, teacher layoffs. They respond really negatively, right? There's a, a reason Cost why. The Republican governor of Kansas's job. That's, yeah. that's right. That's right. And we, you know, our political memories are so short that we we forget about that. Um, yep. But it's such a cautionary tale, and we're we're really speeding along a very similar track. Wow. Well, I, I think this is uh, going to be an enormously important part of the, sto- the, the, the story of our politics this year. And um, I, I think you've teed up really big issues that we have to pay attention to. I, I want to ask you something different. And it is, you know, I mean, John Dewey's a terrible writer. I slogged through him a couple of times because I think he's a very good thinker, even if he's a bad writer. Um, it, but he, he his, his point, one of his many points, is that there's a real connection between how we learn and how we function as how we learn as kids and how we function as adults in a democracy. Um, and I wonder if this is like still things that people think about or have we um, been so completely frightened that the only thing that matters is STEM education anymore. And that's yeah. got all the focus. Do we ever think so about democracy 
in our schooling? What, you know, what an important question and how relevant. If we, you and I have been talking about K-12, but if you think about the what's happening right now in higher ed, that, at, you know, there's this hysterical focus on Harvard, especially where I, I'm in Massachusetts. And so yeah. it's, you know, people just... <laughs> There, there's no like some days are you know our paper of record the Boston Globe will have six different stories on Harvard, um, but <sighs> but at, at the state schools that you know where the vast majority of kids actually go, you see this you know they're they're basically being you know slashed to bits that there is this effort to you know get rid of the liberal arts to tether the the mission of the the these universities ever more tightly to the needs of employers and that to say you know like what we care about most in the world is that kids whether they're in K12 schools or in attending college that they learn practical skills and some of the most important things that John Dewey had to say were you know were about that and why that was so bad and he would say that if you can find the ability to to learn to think critically to be elites then you know we will never we will never really be a democracy Right. And that like I think about that every time I read another story about, you know, say, Wisconsin um, uh, trying to uh, you know push through after years and years of budget austerity and its university system, um, instructing schools where low income and working class kids go to eliminate the liberal arts. Right. That's what they're doing. They're basically saying. Those kids don't need to learn to think critically. And so, you know, we have to really when you when you hear about a policy like that and it's coming to your state too, keep that in mind. If 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 learning to think critically becomes a luxury, who's gonna benefit from it? Yeah. And and having the the all the money the state spends on education at every level. Um, to, to think about that as their job is to do the job training for the companies that hire people so they can, they can offload that cost on the, on the public sector. Um, and uh, it means that people will get their first job and they may do fine. But I mean, I remember um, working with a liberal arts university in the Middle East where families all want their kids to be engineers. And they said, how are we going to get people to come to these programs? And we ended up um, looking at the data and then telling everybody, you know what, go to these other schools and get a job. Come here, get promoted. Because people who get these skills, these critical thinking skills, they get their first job. And you know what? They get promoted and they keep getting promoted. Um, So your point that if we make that just for the elites, we've just created a feedback loop that is centuries old and um, dangerous for uh, democracy. You know, the other thing I think is really important here is that, you know, it's it's really easy to to think that, you know, when we look at what's happening on the Republican side, to think that these guys are completely, you know, they're united and that they have a very coherent vision of where they want the country to go. And and higher ed in particular, I think that they are not united at all. 
And so, you know, some of them, they want to take back the institutions, right? Like they want, you know, more conservative faculty, more conservative courses. But then, you know, you have others of them who think that many fewer people should go to college, period. And, you know, somebody like, you know, Ron DeSantis' higher education advisor thinks that we should get down to numbers closer to the 1960s, that there are too many of the wrong kind of people going to college. And then you have your kind of business-minded folks who want to do exactly what you were just describing. They want to offload the cost of training for specific jobs onto the public. And so that, you know, if you're going to go pursue a college degree, you're going to be trained for, uh, for, one, for one career and hopefully, um, you know, uh, learn to accept whatever salary is handed to you. Um, those are not, those visions are not coherent. They're not all going in the same direction. And so I think that's something that we need to to pay attention to, because those, you know, as Americans, we tend to have a very expansive view of what what we want education to do. It just happens that, you know, we're in this we've sort of walked into this trap now where it's gotten so expensive that that, you know, in investing in something that's going to pay off seems really like the, the logical move. Well, it is a logical move. The, the debt burden is too big on young people for college right now, for sure. Um, and that's a very complicated problem. Uh, higher <laughs> next, cost, next time, next time. Sure. Um, okay. I mean, if you want to talk about higher ed costs, I'm down with that. That's a really interesting <laughs> um, and difficult question. Uh, um, yeah, Harvard. Uh, <laughs> I'm trying to think about whether I actually want to talk about them or not. I think it's, not, it's, really. They've been talked about so much. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, but I think being a university president today has got to be one of the most complicated and difficult jobs anywhere. Yeah, dear, I bet I can't imagine a, a less appealing job right now. Yeah. Um, so, so as we go into the into the year, you, there are just let's recap a little bit in the time we have. There are states that have um, um, passed sort of uh, 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 universal vouchers that the bill mm-hmm. is coming due and voters are going to have to uh, think about that. So it'll be a topic because it's going to mess with state budgets. We have. Um, uh, sort of this argument on one side that says we need to make our schools ideological and we have a reaction on the other that looks similar, but from the other side, but as you pointed out, the vast majority of Americans don't want that at all. They just want them to do the job, right? They just calm down, take the ideology out of the schools. It's not, that's the wrong lens that we should be looking at our schools with. Um, and we have this massive privatization movement that is tied to uh, the idea of making all schools religious, many schools religious, but also um, has a huge sort of greed factor to it. Um, all of this is going to be I, – I don't know how candidates avoid these issues. Maybe in the presidential race it won't get talked about as much, but at, at every other level it's going to be impossible for candidates to avoid. So that's absolutely the case. And I think, you know, one thing that has really, really changed 
over the last few years is that school choice and private religious school choice in particular has really become a litmus test issue for Republicans. And so, you know, Governor Greg Abbott in Texas has spent the last um, few years working feverishly to try to enact uh, school voucher program. And he's been, you know, he's he's been stymied again and again because rural Republicans will not go along with him. And so what you're seeing now is that that Abbott and uh, a bunch of big money school choice groups, including the one that that Betsy DeVos started, they're now primarying those rural Republicans. That that refused to go along with with Greg Abbott, and so so you're absolutely right that that if you're in a state where this stuff is being fought over, you're you're not going to stop hearing about this stuff, and and no. I think that in some ways our national media does us a disservice by by failing to accurately reflect just how key these these issues are right that they're like school choice tends to it's an also ran when when folks are writing about state politics and the issues that are being fought over right but if they understand those issues the way you describe them they would see them as part and parcel with every single one of the big fights we're in and um absolutely uh, so, absolutely so and uh and a major um, uh, that that they are driving a backlash to the backlash, um, mm-hmm. which which really which you know you described so so eloquently that you know like came out of the the pandemic, and and that in order you know like that isn't over yet, um, that you know like sense that you know like all the things that you just described people's resistance to to seeing their schools politicized the exhaustion with culture war issues that that stuff is going to serve as a motivator to voters in a way that i don't think journalists are 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 enough attuned to yeah well um, i'm i'm uh, in awe of the depth of your knowledge about this stuff and uh, and very grateful that you uh, spent a little bit of time on this terrible anniversary talking about this stuff with us. Well, thank you so much for having me. And I, I can't say what an honor to join you on your first episode of the year. And <laughs> and hopefully at some point we'll have uh, some good news to talk about. Well, good or bad, we'll talk several times during the year because these issues are going to be percolating and unfolding and spiraling through all of the battles of this year. So thank you, Jennifer. I really appreciate it. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820. Okay. So again, in keeping with first show of the year and anniversary of this coup attempt. Um, you guys know, I, I mean, the reason why I do this show every week and why I write on Substack um, is in response in part to the fact that Americans don't pay for news. They don't pay for news. They, subscriptions to newspapers are way down. People aren't paying for cable anymore. <laughs> um, viewership of news on television is way down. So how are people getting their information? A lot of it is from the, uh, you know, multiplying right wing 
uh, Facebook groups and others that are funded to get disinformation and misinformation out into the public. So radio like this, um, really important, although God knows we are a small fraction of what right-wing radio is across America. But there are other efforts going on, and one that I love is Courier Newsroom because they are uh, doing great journalism, um, not charging people for it, and distributing it um, through the social media platforms where people are, particularly people who are um, casual consumers of news. So this is a way of getting folks to really know what's going on. And um, uh, Courier has outlets in a bunch of states. And I'm joined by Giselle Belito, who's the political editor at Floricua. That's the Courier News outlet in Florida. And this is our first time talking together, though not our first time on the show talking about Florida or the Courier News model. Giselle, welcome. Thank you. How are you? I'm uh, cold. (laughs) Up here today. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are uh, a little cold today with temperatures hovering in the 70s. I heard so there was some imagine. snow in Miami, though, a week ago. Is that true? Not recently, no. Not that I'm aware of. Okay. But well, it's snowing here in Chicago. Oh, that's lovely. It is, actually. All right. Well, um, <laughs> Let's get to it. There's so much I want to ask you about in, 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 I mean, in part because Florida is a, is a, um, is a test case for America to see what a certain kind of right wing governance actually means. And in December, the state rejected federal funds to fight climate change. I, I want you to tell us about that and why they did it and what it means and what you know, Floridians think about that? Well, as you know, no other state has more to lose over this issue than Florida. You know, with the coastal and inland flooding, you know, the extreme heat, the, you know, the hurricane season with storms that grow stronger every year. So we have a lot to lose. In fact, again, Florida is the state that has the most to lose over this issue. Yet, Governor DeSantis claims that climate change is a hoax a left-wing attempt to politicize the weather, okay? So, in fact, uh, in the past few years, DeSantis and Republican state lawmakers have rejected at least $11 billion in federal funds saying they politicized climate change. So, uh, like you mentioned, yes, recently in December, um, the Florida Department of Transportation secretary uh, turned down $320 million. And, again, he called the program the Continued politicization of our roadways. Florida, by the way, was the only state to turn down the funding. I don't understand. Florida's sinking. I mean, look, if if sea level rises, there are actually places where you can build barriers that would protect Manhattan, right? But you can't do that in Miami. The water's going to come up right from underground and, 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 and make that city, you know, miserable for people who live there. If this is an enormous problem, I mean, I would. So, so do do voters in Florida? Do they see through this? Are they worried about climate change? And um, and, and how far does it go? If there's another terrible hurricane, a climate problem. After all, they're not going to reject emergency funding, are they? To rebuild after. 
I imagine that emergency funding they will not reject. But, you yeah. know, uh, we have Democratic lawmakers in the state like Lois Frankel, Kathy Castor, Maxwell Frost. They have tried to pass legislation to address the problem. You know, like Anna Scamani's plan to achieve net zero carbon pollution emissions by 2050. And Scamani actually also helped to launch the Energy and Climate Caucus, you know, a coalition of state lawmakers who are pursuing specific state legislation to combat climate change. But, you know, it all comes to nothing if the bills don't get signed into law. And I, I spoke, I actually spoke to a senator, uh, a Democratic senator, and he said, you know, this rejection of um, federal funds is just an attempt to not give credit to the Democrats. Okay. So instead of, you know, signing bills that would address climate change, DeSantis recently approved a bill that could stop banks and investment managers from investing in companies that, according to him, are part of the woke culture that includes climate change. So this is where we are right now. This is his attack on so-called ESG, right? This this mm-hmm. notion that um, that has gone all over the country that um, uh, ratings agencies are looking at investments not just for um, return, but you know you have to look at risk. And there's social risk, there's environmental risk, there's governance risk. So this doesn't come from the left wing. This comes from um, I. I the financial community thinking about what are the risks to investments. But again, in Florida, um, if those risks, uh, if the existence of those risks challenges the mental model um, on the right, they have to be uh, uh, legislated out of existence. Exactly. And, and that is the problem we have, not, not only with climate change. And by the way, you know, um, Ron DeSantis has never said the word climate change. To him, it doesn't exist. Right. So this is where we are right now. But it, it cuts across all levels. You know, this this mentality that everything that goes against their mindset is left wing propaganda like education. Yeah. You know, the, yeah. the thing that is going on with education here is literally hair raising. Well, let's talk about you know? that because you're ground zero for book bans and teacher coercion and partisan efforts to uh, magify curriculum. So let, let's talk about those efforts and how, again, how are Floridians coping? Well, uh, again, Governor DeSantis calls the book bans a hoax. Yet, Florida ranks number one as the state with the most books pulled from public schools this year. In fact, Florida accounts for a whopping 40% of the nationwide total of book bans. Okay, so this is almost half of the nation. And not surprisingly, over 75% of the books banned were specifically written and selected for younger audiences, but 30% include characters of color and themes of race. Okay, 30% include characters who are LGBTQ and 6% include transgender characters. Okay, so that tells you where their mentality is, is at. But, you know, there is here is what is chilling. And, and please bear in mind that this is not being said quietly in the fine print. This is being said out loud. You know, in a legal filing last year, the Florida Attorney General, Ashley Moody, 
stated her belief that Florida's public school libraries should, and I quote, convey the government's message that they are, and again, I quote, a forum for government speech, not a forum for free expression. Okay, I, I, I mean, that is a totalitarian view of government. I mean, and we've gone out of our way in the United States to 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 limit um, uh, the the power of leaders to coerce parts of government to do things because that because it leads to bad governance. That's why we have the Federal Reserve separated from the executive branch. They can make decisions that aren't just political about the money supply. And and there are many many examples. This is why there's civil service. Oh, but these guys don't believe in civil service. Schedule F and all. They want to get rid of civil service everywhere. They really want the government to be a tool of their party. Um, and history is filled with bloodshed because of that. Well, and this is the party of supposedly small government, right? So no, now not this anymore. Whole, <laughs> <laughs> this whole fear mentality is like now uh, educators, you know, and librarians feeling that they could be penalized by those state laws. Uh, you know, school districts are restricting access to certain books. Again, these are books that were specifically created for children and young adults. Okay. So there's this this fear that pervades everything. I've spoken with teachers, and they tell me. I, I spoke with a particular a special teacher who told me, I cried when I had to pull those books out of my classroom because yeah. these are books I grew up with that I that I loved reading that taught me so much, you know. And she even she even quoted Marcus Aurelius who said, "We are our thoughts. You know, we are an expression of our thoughts, and if we limit." kids from being exposed to all kinds of thoughts, right? What we're doing is we're indoctrinating them. Yeah. So Giselle, we've covered, we've covered like environment where climate change apparently by law doesn't exist in Florida and freedom of thought, which apparently by law doesn't exist because libraries and schools are instruments of the, of the governing power, according to, the governor and his administration there don't ordinary Floridians, aren't they, aren't they, are they not aware of this? Are they, or, I mean, it can't be something that people support. We have a very, we have a very, a very specific particular situation in Florida where we have a lot of people who came here from dictatorial regimes. And if you mention the word left, to them, they stop thinking. They literally stop thinking, and they run scared, and they will vote for the right. And uh, as I you see. may have, noticed, as you may have noticed, uh, they are using this. They are using this fear and manipulating people with fear and through fear. And so, when you mention that climate change is a left-wing hoax, or that these books are left-wing propaganda, or to turn your kids gay. They run scared. And mm-hmm. this is this is what's particularly happening in Florida, but not only in Florida. I, I see Trump using it also, this this uh, philosophy of fear. OK, yeah, I see him I, using but, it as well. Yeah. But remember, across the country, Republicans keep losing elections because this is who they are. So uh, I want to focus more on Florida. And it's really interesting 
what you said about the nature of the immigration in Florida and where people came from, what they were fleeing, um, coloring their ability to think about what's going on. L- let's talk about Governor DeSantis more. He is um, his presidential aspirations are. Um, well, if anything is going to convince him about climate change, he certainly had a change in the climate of his political aspirations. Um, he went from being a front runner for the GOP nomination and a potential next president to can he even keep up with Nikki Haley and maybe come in third, distant third. Um, I mean, he may not even be in the primary, the Republican primary in time for Florida to vote. Um, and I guess there's also a challenge from sort of appalling Matt Gates uh, in a primary for the governor. Will 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 any of this um, uh, affect his governorship? Will he, you think he can, you know, not run again or or lose because of a challenge from the right or maybe voters just who are sick of his cruelty? Well. Uh- I think one of, in my personal opinion, and from what I've talked with people about, uh, part of the problem he has is that he's not a very charismatic leader. Okay, he comes across as very, uh, uh, I, I hate to use the term, but almost clumsy in, in you know, spreading his message. You know, so yeah, he looks like he's made out of cardboard. Think, exactly, he, he doesn't he doesn't uh, show a lot of empathy, and, and also, yeah, there's no heart. He has no heart. Absolutely. No and, and I think that a lot, a lot of people are seeing through. I think that a lot of Floridians, whether they admit it or not, are seeing through his culture wars that he has no plan. I mean, you cannot mention one thing that he has promised that he could even remotely uh, fulfill. OK, hmm. so all the plans he has is, you know, cultural culture wars. You know, ban books, uh, restrict uh, rights for LGBTQ people, stuff like that. And people are seeing through that. Now, Matt Gates is expected to run. But here's the interesting thing. There's talk that Casey, Governor DeSantis' wife, uh, will throw her hat in the ring, believe it or not. And uh, a University of North Florida poll shows Casey ahead of a pool of potential Republican candidates with 22% of those surveyed. By comparison, Matt Gates has 90, 9% support. Yeah. Okay. Well, I've so, seen her. She has a lot of personality. She's definitely not like her husband. She is, she's got, she, she comes across better than he does. And therein lies the danger that, that yeah. she could, you know, um, Ashley Moody has 6% of the vote. So, uh, so far, Casey is ahead with 22%, but 40% of the respondents are undecided. So, you know, it's too early. It's too early to say how that might play out. But I do, I can tell you from personal experience that a lot of people that I know and friends who have always been Republican are now saying, you know what, um... I'm not completely convinced with DeSantis. I'm not completely convinced with his political agenda. So maybe there is a sort of, you know, turning of the tide here in Florida. Well, one of the things he did do was uh, uh, push an anti-abortion agenda. 
And mm-hmm. that certainly had a reaction. I think, um, uh, is it true that just recently uh, voters have enough certified signatures to get a referendum on the ballot in the in the upcoming election? Yes, they do. They have reached the number of valid signatures. However, they are facing now another obstacle. Ashley Moody is challenging the wording, okay, uh, of the of the proposal and saying that it might confuse voters. So that's another challenge that they're having. Uh, the Supreme Court will decide on that February 7th. So we'll see how that turns out. If they change yeah. the wording, if there are more obstacles coming up. However, uh, according according to statistics, most Floridians, including a majority of Republicans, are against DeSantis' abortion ban. So, you know, there's a light at the end of the tunnel there. Yeah, I mean, in Ohio, they um, the the Republicans uh, claimed the language was. Um, too hard to understand. So they wrote more partisan language and the voters still rejected their point of view. I think I think on abortion, uh, voters are pretty smart. It's not that complicated an issue. Uh, I'm sorry, the issues around it are, are complex and emotional, but the but the law around it is not that complicated. People can understand what these bills say um, and they'll make their decisions. And um, but it should drive a lot of turnout. I believe so. I believe so. And, uh, you know, our legislative session starts January 9th. There are a lot of new laws, you know, new bills being passed for climate change, for education, and we'll see how those do, you know. So we're still hopeful. I mean, Florida right now is a great uh, question mark because I do know that a lot of people are changing their minds. A lot of, you know, things are going on, but it's still not clear to us the direction we're taking. Wait, Giselle, are you telling me that you think that that Florida could be um, uh, in play in the presidential race? Uh, I don't dare venture, uh, you know, an answer about <laughs> yeah. that. But, you know, it hasn't you know, been Florida a swing state in a while. Mm hmm. Yes, that would be interesting. Right. That would really be interesting. Really, interesting. that would really. Be interesting. Yeah. But right now, like you said, like you said, Florida is like um, you know the model for the rest of the nation to see where we're going, and I think we need to show people how Florida is right now. We have um, we have inflation like no like no other state. Our uh, property insurance is three times the national average. Uh, people are moving. People are moving out of their homes because they can't afford property insurance. You know, and this is a climate change state. problem. Of course, of course, yeah. it's all related. It's all related. But here in Florida, we have a governor. We for twenty years we've had a Republican government that legislates in favor of big corporations. Okay. And has left Floridians, you know, hanging. Well, I I, I want to ask you about that. Um, I, I I recognize that by and large they have been pro corporate to the to the you know detriment of the environment and of workers. But then now they're so emboldened 
that they, I mean, I'm thinking of the Disney questions with this governor, where they've decided that government should tell corporations what to do. Um, this is new. I, this is, I mean, I've never seen anything like what Ron DeSantis did with Disney. And, and I, I don't think he won that fight. Um, but, but I mean, again, how, how do the people in Orlando think about taking on the biggest employer like that? Well, it's, it's not been his most popular move. I have to say that. <laughs> however, however, again, he goes after companies that he thinks are woke. The whole thing with Disney started because they opposed his don't say gay not law. You know, that nonsense. They opposed the don't say gay law. So he went after them. Right. And companies that he calls woke are the ones that he goes after. So. Again, the party of small government is dictating to corporations now according to whether he thinks they're woke or they go against his, you know, gay agenda, anti-gay agenda. Again, I can't believe that is, um, but even people who are fleeing, you know, the uh, dictators in Latin America who came to Florida, they, I, that they can't recognize dictatorial behavior when they see it in their own state. That is what is amazing, actually. That is really amazing. I'm, I'm telling you, not all. There are a lot of people who, you know, are very clear on the direction that DeSantis is tr taking the state or has taken the state because the book bans are real and the LGBTQ, you know, bans are real. Mm -hmm. But others, for some reason, are not getting it. And I, I think it's I honestly think it's fear. Um, tell me a little bit, if you can, anything you can tell me about the state of the Democratic Party in in the in Florida. Are, are they organized? Are they modernizing? Do they have any energy? Are they recruiting volunteers? I mean, I assume that a, a referenda on abortion will bring out a lot of people, but it's going to require some organization. Well, when I when I um, spoke with uh, Nikki Fried, the chair of the Florida Democratic Party, she told me that, in her opinion, the party had not been doing enough in Florida to mobilize people. <clears throat> sorry, excuse me, to you know to register voters, and that that was going to be her number one priority. That she was going to go out and register voters and talk to people and go you know door to door. You know, however, I have not spoken to her recently. I'm mm -hmm. actually I'm scheduling an interview with her uh, and, and I, I'm looking forward to see what she says about that. But when I spoke with her, she admitted, you know, Democrats have not been doing the best possible job, uh, you know, mobilizing people. In Florida, in Florida. Yeah, I think that's obvious. Right. Um, it's interesting. Mm -hmm. Democrats um, in the last few years have had a, been in transition around the country from, you know, old school Democratic parties, which were big city mayors and labor. Um, labor has stayed a big part of it. Big cities have stayed part of it. But they have they have now created many more on ramps for people to get involved. Um, uh, they, they've formed coalitions with like minded organizations that don't want to be part of any political party. But, um, for instance, care about abortion rights or or book banning and stuff like that. And so, the, so um, there's a lot of creativity now uh, in, in local Democratic parties around the country. And if Florida and Nikki Fried figure that out, I think they can, they can become a real force in the state. 
I think I agree with you, and I would love to see that in Florida. However, I, I, I insist that I think the Democratic Party here in Florida has to be mindful of the fact that we have a very unique situation here. If you, in people's minds, if you equate Democrat with the left, you're going to lose. Yeah, yep. That's a lesson for Democrats all over the country and a lesson for progressives to really understand how diverse our country is and how um, uh, people with whom you share a lot of values, they have a different language sometimes. And they hear words like left and uh, and because of what they fled, think that means uh, uh, dictatorial left. Um, Yeah. Exactly. It, it, it triggers them. It's actually it's actually very funny because I went to a, to one of those Trump things campaigns to cover it for um, for Floriqua. And there was a gentleman mm-hmm. holding a Confederate flag and he was screaming that, uh, you know, Democrats were anti they were Antifa. And I said, do you know what that means? And he said, yeah, anti-fascist. And I asked him, do you know what a fascist is? And he just took his flag and walked away and he wouldn't answer. So actually, (laughs) but actually these people think that fascism is good. Oh, my gosh. Well, we have a lot to worry about this year, but I really appreciate your coming on and, you know, sharing some of the um, your insights into that warmer state with those of us in the colder upper Midwest. Giselle, again, thank you for sharing some of your Saturday with us. And thank you so much for having me. All right, everybody, we're going to take a quick break. And um, uh, when we come back, uh, Brian Boitler is joining us. He's been here before. Really interesting journalist. You're going to not want to miss that. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Big Picture with Edwin Eisendraft on WCPT 820. Okay, welcome back. And as I promised you in November, Brian Boitler is back with us. He... uh, uh, is uh, he, he has a Substack um, newsletter called Off Message, which is fabulous. Uh, he found his way to this after you know more than two decades in journalism as a reporter, a columnist, an editor. He, um, I, I think, I said this last time. One of the reasons he's do- doing Off Message is it, it gives him the freedom to say what. Uh, you know, without filter, a liar is a liar, a, a con man is a con man. I mean, he's right out there telling you what, you know, you read it and you go, yeah, that, boy, that's right. And I wish the mainstream media wouldn't be trapped in its both sides uh, uh, nonsense all the time. Um, Brian, welcome back. It's great to be with you again. Should we, I mean, this is January 6th. Tell me, let's, let's talk about Joe Biden's speech. I'd love to get your take mm-hmm. on it. Um, uh, I'm sure you, you had a chance yeah. to see it. And, and let me, I'd love to know what you thought. Well, I thought it was outstanding. And I, what I've, what I've noticed or what I, what I realized as I was watching it was that this is probably the, um, the, the third sort of, a big speech Joe Biden has given about January 6th, like one every anniversary, essentially. And each time he gets a bit more explicit about who he's talking about and why it's important. You know, the, 
there's a tendency in politics to um, to speak a little bit obliquely, to kind of speak, speak in code, say things that you anticipate that your audience uh, will be able to infer what you're talking about. So you don't necessarily name your opponent all the time, and you allude to the things that they did that are bad, but you don't actually say it. And as you get close to the election, and as the stakes grow and grow, Biden has become more and more unfiltered about simply saying Donald Trump has fascist ambitions. He wants to be a dictator. He um, engaged in insurrection. And uh, I, I, I think that that kind of literalism is good. It's important because not everyone um, is a, you know, a, a news junkie who learns to decode what politicians say. Some people need to hear things in blunt terms. And I was happy um, that he used blunt terms. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I, I thought it was uh, a great effort. I thought he was clear. He was personal. He um, he called out Donald Trump um, for his crimes and for his character um, and did it uh, uh, uh and did it, uh, you know, with a kind of honesty and um, um, passion that I think people will respond to. Um, and, you know, I mean, presidents do try and rise above. They try and put things in in um, grand historical arcs. It's part it comes with the job. But when the other guys in a sewer, you know, sometimes you just have to say, um, there's a grand historical arc here where a democracy, it's a pretty important thing. But you know what? Down in that sewer is a rat that's biting his feet. And he has a name. It's Donald <laughs> Trump. And, and he did it. I mean, he just called him out. And it was a it was a I thought it was a beautiful effort. Yeah. You know, one of the things about January 6th and Donald Trump's corruption and the and his the sordid way he conducts himself as a politician that I think is important is that it's easy to be passionate about because it's it's unjust in some sense. And you can see the difference in uh, you can see that in how passionate Joe Biden was when delivering this speech. You don't tend to get that passion from him when he's talking about kitchen table economic policies or foreign affairs or some of the other things, infrastructure that. I will certainly play a role in this campaign, but they're just emotionally a little bit more inert than insurrection, dictatorship, corruption, revenge. Um, and Joe Biden being passionate and upset and, you know, sort of wanting to grab the country by its lapels and shake it is a important antidote to the, you know, there are probably hundreds, if not thousands of people in the world whose job is to sort of misleadingly clip video of Joe Biden looking old, stumbling or stammering. Um, and it, the, the goal of that is to make people think that he's unwell, too old to be president, uninspiring in some sense. And this is the best way to counter counteract that is with talking about things that make you riled up like that. And that, you know, when clipped by people who aren't trying to mislead voters, make you look strong and like you care about something. So I think that the the, the fact that it, it riles him up is 
good for Joe Biden, apart from the things he's literally saying about Donald Trump. It it shows us who Joe Biden is and that he's still vital despite being an old president. Yeah, I mean, he's old, and I think he's better than he's ever been, partly because, you know what, sometimes you get better when you have had more time. I mean, I think he would he would he would not have been this good a president 20 years ago, for sure. That, I think that's right. Yeah, I think it's, you know, I think that when he got the nomination in 2020, um, he, because he is a responsible person, um, and his age, because they're, um, you know, they, I think, have a um, an ethic of responsibility about them, too. Instilled in him that, you know, the, the shoot from the hip Joe Biden that we saw as senator and even when he was vice president is not... It's a presidential candidate and certainly the president himself should not be freewheeling in what they say. And so they imposed a level of discipline on him um, to to prevent him from kind of getting over his skis. And I think the effect of that is to make is to like lean into some of his other liabilities like his age when he's trying to. to control his comments because on the world stage, it's just important to do that. It makes you seem disimpassioned. It makes you seem withdrawn from the subject matter that you're talking about. Um, and um, the, the speech about January 6th is I think like a, a really great sort of Goldilocks middle ground between the overly restrained president Biden and the, you know, the um, sort of, Senator Joe Biden that um, I I first encountered 20 years ago. So you and I both thought that was a strong speech, a really important one. And then I got up and looked at the headline of the New York Times this morning, and it was blech. I mean, (laughs) you know, and then I and then I read that Donald Trump is in Iowa saying Joe Biden's a dictator. Come on. He doesn't even know what democracy is. I like (laughs) the journalists are going to look at that and go, you know, both sides are arguing about democracy. And that is complete, infuriating, um, dangerous nonsense from your uh, your profession. Help with me. I'm not claiming this as a victory. I'm not claiming this as a victory for myself, but there was a strong reaction online to the way um, the New York Times and, and mainstream media in general initially covered Biden's speech and then Donald Trump's, I know you are, but what am I, counter speech in Iowa. And uh-huh. the, the New York Times initial speech or the initial um, sort of synthesis of those two events was to say something like, um, you know, dueling speeches um, means facts will be stretched in the election or something very mealy mouth like that. And they have since updated the headline to um, to make it more clear that Donald Trump told lies about January 6th when he responded to Joe Biden. Um, so, it, I mean, yeah, it's, and, it is and is responsible for it. Yes. <laughs> and it's I mean, Joe Biden didn't try and overturn an election. You know, you would think right. on this anniversary where people died because that man tried to steal an election, you would think that that would be something that could break through this disease in journalism of, oh, my gosh, that may be true. But the other guy is saying that Mickey Mouse was on your campaign. <laughs> yes, yeah, 
fact that the tendency exists after all we've been through is infuriating. But I do think it's important for people to realize that um, that media outlets like the New York Times are responsive to constructive criticism, even when that constructive criticism is delivered angrily because it is infuriating mm-hmm. to see the January 6th insurrection subjected to this both sides style analysis. Um, but it, the, I, the most important thing in the end is what is the bulk of news media coverage of the January 6th anniversary and then generally of the contest between Trump and Biden going to, going to look like? It is, is it going to accurately convey the stakes of the election in a sort of global summary sense? I mean, obviously, I think the jury's still out about that and I worry about it, but I, I'm not fatalistic about it. I don't necessarily assume that because these instincts percolate in journalists and their editors and through these institutions, that that means that the whole election is going to be um, this sort of um, impenetrable, you can't tell who's good and who's bad or who's right or who's wrong style of coverage. I'm, I'm, I'm still hopeful that... Uh, fairly clear sense of the, the choice before people will will pervade. Well, I hope you're right. I expect they will be breathless for months about who Donald Trump will pick as his vice president because he's going to sew up the nomination early and, and then he can have his beauty contest for three months and journalists will be trapped covering every breathless trip to Mar-a-Lago and then they'll cover every poll, you know, and um, I, it's just terrible. That's that, that's alarmingly plausible. I I I don't blame you for worrying about that. Um, yeah. uh, I I, um, I hope it's not how things go. But also, I do want to say, you know, the the mainstream media should be better than it is. But given its failings, I do think the the Democratic Party leadership, the Joe Biden for president campaign, the White House, ought to be mindful of the fact that they are part of this media political system too. And if they want journalists to be focused on other things, they need to be creating moments that journalists can't ignore, right? Like part of the reason Donald Trump is going to do this sort of beauty pageant style test for everyone who wants to be his vice president, or we assume he's going to do something like this is because he wants the news media to bring our cameras to Mar-a-Lago and watch people walk up that the velvet carpet or whatever that, yeah, that walks, whatever that, it is, that, you know, yeah. it's yeah. a stunt. It's a stunt meant to get reporters to, to pay attention. And I know it's not the most high minded thing in the world, but Democrats can, can be stunty too. They can, um, they can do things that are meant to, to draw attention to themselves and the things that they're saying as a sort of counterweight to the nonsense and pageantry and lies that we know will come from Trump. Okay, I think that is a um, very good suggestion, and I hope they do it. I mean, again, that speech yesterday was one of those things you can't ignore, and yet right. the counter-programming befuddled the press. So, <laughs> I, I, you know. It's a, um, it's, a, it's, it's a wrestling match. It's, a, it's an in-the-mud kind of squabble, but Democrats realize they're in that in that pit. <laughs> yep, we got to be better. They're running against it's, 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 yep. it's the nature of politics, unfortunately. Yep, yep. All right, let's talk about um, something else. You you wrote about it. Um, 
And that was the recent uh, report of the Democrats on the House Oversight Committee that documented the foreign payments to Donald Trump when he was president, sort of the clear violations of the emoluments clause, clause of the Constitution. And there are two stories here, and I want to get your take on both of them. Mm-hmm. One is about Trump, and I have to ask, who cares? I mean, really, what evidence does the country still need to know that he's a serial violator of the law, a grifter, and a thief? But the other one is... Um, um, uh, about the GOP, its duplicity, its complicity, its capitulation to Mr. Trump. And, you know, it's like, oh, my gosh, maybe we can find some shred of evidence somewhere in the world that maybe Joe Biden has made some kind of profit somewhere off something his son might have done, even though we look, we haven't found it. But gee whiz, we can't talk about this one, which is right in front of us. So there's both of those things. I'm going to get your take on both. Yeah. Um, so I think my one thing I like to say about the Republican effort to um, neutralize the fact that Donald Trump was on the take from everyone, not just foreign governments while he was president, um, by looking for some like some any point. hint of evidence that, that Hunter Biden gave him a, a five dollar bill at some point or whatever, is that Joe Biden, unlike Donald Trump, discloses his finances. So, like, if if he was hoovering in millions of dollars from anyone, we'd be able to see it. And certainly with the addition of subpoena power on top of Joe Biden's voluntary disclosures, if if Republicans had the goods on Joe Biden, they would have been able to find them by now. Jamie Raskin was able to find the goods on Donald Trump despite not being in the majority and so not having subpoena power, right? It's not that hard is under the microscope like this to, to, to figure it out when they're taking money from unsavory sources. That's one thing. Another thing um, is, you know, I, I wrote about the emoluments clause a lot while Trump was president. I probably used the term emoluments a lot um, in, in the article that you just referenced. And it's important because in the Constitution and it's, it's you know, essentially uh, a prohibition on the president that Trump violated. So it's grounds for him to have been impeached when he was president and when he becomes president again. If he becomes president again, it will be grounds for him to be impeached again. But I don't think most people understand what an emolument is. And so I, I try to I try to refer to it as bribe-taking because that kind of, everyone understands what bribery is, that it's bad, that it's criminal. You certainly don't want your, your political leaders to be subjected to bribery or to bribe others. Um, and the fact that Jamie Raskin has has irrefutable proof of this um, is, is super valuable for, for both because it, it, it confirms what we all knew. We all kind of saw with our own eyes, but maybe didn't have sort of paper receipts for. Um, and it underscores that what Republicans are doing with their endless fake Hunter Biden investigation is about trying to neutralize a, a, a uh, like a real problem that Trump has by inventing a fake one that Joe Biden doesn't actually have. And I think that like just in general, that's how I hope people who follow this story or who, or, or who happen upon it, like those should be their takeaways because even though, you know, as I deliver them, I, I'm kind of delivering them in like a, a, a partisan or an ideologically biased way. Obviously, like I, I, I think Joe Biden's a pretty ethical president and Donald Trump was the least ethical president in U.S. history, but it, it's it's also just true. Um, and so, so I, do think, I, do, I do think that the evidence is there. Yeah. 
yeah, real power and potential in what Jamie Raskin uncovered. Now, the question is, will the party roll with it? Will they try to build on what Raskin Foundation Raskin has laid? And that is, and unfortunately, they can't really do anything about it in the House because, as I said, they don't have this subpoena power. But what um, I like I, you know, I've not been blown me. away by the Senate. You know, they, they haven't taken a whole bunch of initiative in running investigations for the last year. Senate's got it right. But, but what, what I like about it from a, as it relates to the conversation we had a minute ago, um, is that this finally puts the both sides thing in a very different light, right? Because this is saying, you know, the, the, the Republicans have been very good about saying, oh, yeah, Joe Biden, well, you know, he's claiming he's for the democracy. He's a dictator. And so they say it and it gets covered like like this. But this is this puts the both sides stuff in really a different light. The Republicans now go, oh, we want to attack Hunter Biden because we think Joe's a crook. And the the both sides is, oh, really? OK, well, here's the evidence. Here's your crook. You care about crooks. You care about good government. You care about not having a president on the take. What are you going to do about it? And they, like, the answer is, where's that sewer again? How can I get down there fast? Like, how can I hide? <laughs> yeah, I, I return to this idea um, a fair amount, usually on Twitter, but in, in some of the media criticism that I write at longer length, too, is that I wish that journalists didn't pretend to believe Republicans when Republicans were pretending to be outraged by something, right? Like after four years of Donald Trump, every reporter who wasn't like in high school at the time or, or college at the time should know that the Republican Party revealed it has no problem with political corruption, um, no problem with inciting political violence, uh, no problem with um, discourteous, you know, um, uncivil discourse or whatever. And so having demonstrated that irrefutably, when they, with Trump out of power, revert to like walking around as if their hair is on fire about an imaginary corruption scandal, it's not just enough, I don't think, for the press to say, well, there's no basis for their allegations against Joe Biden. I think that they can go a step further and say the Republicans are... Um, engage in a kind of cover-up of Trump's behavior, which Republicans have already revealed they don't care about. So not only are yep. they trying to, they're like making up stories about Joe Biden, but we know that the stories that they're making up are about things that don't actually upset them. They're just trying to mislead you so that you become upset. And yep. it's, 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 it's sort of there in plain sight. Yeah. Um, yeah. But unfortunately, that requires like a level of extrapolation on the part of neutral political reporters that they just won't won't engage in. All right. I have one more topic for you. Um, okay. It's related to Trump and his his lawless behavior. I, I, the Supreme Court normally takes about 80 cases a year. I mean, it's a big country. We have complicated issues. And w whatever you think about the Supreme Court, it, it, about its current membership, the idea that we have a top court in this country and it tells us what the law is um, in a complicated nation, really important. We want it to be successful. We want it to do its job. So, OK, it's got a big job to do. And yet, like, you know, 10 percent of everything they're going to hear this year is about Donald Trump. 
You know, can he run for office? And that's the 14th Amendment stuff. Is he above the law? And those are his claims for absolute immunity or his claims to be immune from civil liability. Or does the country even have laws that prohibit the storming of the Capitol because the January 6th defendants claim that they use the wrong law to convict them? Or um, what can he talk about as a presidential candidate because he's gag ordered because he is threatening people? Or like, do states have the right to hold him accountable because Mark Meadows is trying to move the thing to D.C.? And, you know, like all of this um, all of these are issues, but like, how is a system meant to hold people accountable turned into a system that just delays accountability to the point where it's no longer justice? And I, I mean, I'm, the idea that 10% of their docket is Donald Trump and their job isn't, after all, the guilt or innocence. Their job is like, what is the law? That's the Supreme Court's mm-hmm. question. How is it that this man has us so confused about what the law is? Well, I mean, I, I, I'm not sure that the, the justices themselves are super confused about what the law is. It's just that in these cases, they're acting as, um, a, as a political body and in some cases as political partisans rather than as, um, you know, judicious, unbiased intermediaries of, uh, like, questions of controversy facing the country, right? If, if the Supreme Court was like, you know what, this guy is just like jamming off our process because we have to adjudicate so many different claims around him. He's a, he's, he, you know, he's a nuisance to our system. They could take care of it by applying a lot of Donald Trump and saying that he's no longer eligible for the ballot and that he's not immune for crimes he committed in the presidency. And that would be the end of it, you know, <laughs> and they could do that quickly in theory. Um, and the, uh, it, it not only would it would it vindicate the law, um, it would it would like solve their own problems that he could, the logistical problems that he causes for them um, by just ignoring the politics and doing the law. The I think that the scenario that you and I are probably both a little worried about is that by taking their time with these things, the calendar will rule out. Um, things like whether Donald Trump can go to trial before people vote and, and be either uh, convicted or acquitted of conspiring to overturn the 2020 election before um, people can go to vote or that um, the, the Supreme Court will will sort of dither around the question of whether he engaged in insurrection and find some pretext for leaving him on the ballot. Um, and those are choices that they're making. And there's there's no reason why those have to go slowly. Um, and, uh, I, I, I think that like, yes, it's, it's remarkable that this one person is, is likely going to, um, sort of capture 10% or something of the Supreme court's, um, energies for, for this coming term. But it turns out to be a big problem when the former president who wants to be president again is a criminal, uh, and like, not like a little criminal, but like a, like a, a dangerous criminal against the constitution. And um, so, so, you know, they're kind of stuck with this lot. And if, if they think it's a problem, maybe they should look to the source. And if, if, if they do that, maybe they can bring themselves and say, okay, you know what? We really need to stop beating around the bush with this guy and actually apply the law to him. And only then will he be restrained enough to be out of our hair. Yeah, you sound like you think that's a possibility. 
I actually think uh, it's a possibility. I actually I think, think it I, is I, a possibility. Small possibility. You know, uh, I, my uh, my co-writer, Deepak Gupta, and I um, published a New York Times op-ed a few days after January 6, 2021, about the emoluments. I'm sorry, about the um, the 14th Amendment Section 3 issue yep. and how yep. this would seem, would seem to disqualify him from being president again. And I've continued to write about it for three years, even though I think that the, you know, if I had to place a bet, I would want pretty favorable odds um, if I was going to bet on them tossing Donald Trump from the ballot, because I... I just kind of doubt that it, it, I can't put myself in the headspace of the, the day that opinion comes down and they've said, sorry, you can't run for president and, and it's over. Right. I, it, I, yeah, it's really hard to, for me to imagine that. Um, and so I, you know, my, 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 you know, my odds making brain is telling me it's, you know, pretty low odds that that's going to happen, but it could because the law really is very clear and there the are definitely, and their own their legitimacy is in such, yes. you know, in, on the other hand, chaos for the country, right? Because, okay, yes. he's off the ballot in Colorado, but he's on the ballot in Texas. I mean, chaos, yeah. so I, right? I, I, I think that, the, um, you know, there are, there are people who will simplistically argue that because six of the nine Supreme Court justices were appointed by Republicans and three are appointed by Trump, well, then that just means that they're going to do what the party wants and the party obviously doesn't want them to kick the Republican nominee and waiting off the ballot. That may be the, the ruling that, actually, that, that ultimately comes down, but the calculus is more complicated than that. They right. are cross-pressured by more than just their partisan affiliations, right? It's the stuff that we talk about, about Trump being a menace to the court. It's because these people aren't just partisan Republicans, they're ideological right-wing jurists. And so they don't just want Republicans to have the nominee of their choice. They want to advance the cause of the conservative movement in America. And they may think that Donald Trump is credits the conservative movement. Yeah. The yeah. dangers of the conservative movement. So I, agree I don't know. I, I don't know how that skew, you know, <laughs> or whatever uh, comes out uh, in the end. Um, but it's not quite as simple as six Republican appointed justices means that the Republican yeah. uh, candidate is going to get off scot-free. Well, um, we've just run ourselves out of time, so that's going to be our last word. But I, as always, I, I just find your stuff really interesting. I think you are a, a clear and honest writer, which is always fun, and um, and you pick some great topics. So um, I, I really appreciate your spending some time with me this year. Thanks so much. That's really kind of you to say. I appreciate it. All right. All right, everybody. Um, that was Brian Boitler. You can read his stuff on Substack. Uh, uh, we're going to take a break for the news. And then A.B. Stoddard is joining me. You're not going to want to miss that. Stay tuned. You're looking at the big picture with Edwin Eisentraff on WCPT 820. Okay, a little after 3 p.m. here in the blustery upper Midwest. And I, I'm joined again um, by the Bulwarks, A.B. Stoddard. And I, I took some time to think about why I enjoy talking to her as much as I do. She is, of course, a terrific journalist um, and a columnist with a, a point of view that, that if you read her stuff, you can see it's based on having fabulous sources, right, and having conversations with people at the center of our nation's politics. But it's also um, informed by her very deep commitment to the hard work of thinking through difficult questions. 
You know, I mean, it's a lot easier to judge than to think. And she's not going to judge until she's thought. I love that. Anyway, Amy, welcome back. Oh, thank you so much. Those are lovely words. And I appreciate all the encouragement that I can find in 2024, Edwin. It's great to be with you. Well, you know I'm an optimist, but today is, after all, an ugly anniversary. And I guess I want to start by getting your thoughts on what has happened to us since January 6th, 2020. Yeah, I made the mistake. um, I'm working this weekend a little bit because I want to file for Monday. So sort of getting myself together on what I, you know, researching what I was thinking of writing about. And I was, I guess, on Twitter. And it was, I knew this week when I saw that UMD Washington Post poll about all the gaslighting and whitewashing and memory holing and red pilling of January 6th yep. among Republicans, I knew I would be, you know, I would get frustrated. But today, um, seeing the responses um, on Twitter from Donald Trump Jr. and Senator Mike Lee, um, and then also seeing the real facts of three years ago, the things that Republicans said on January 6th, and the seventh before they would go on to gaslight us um, about this, about this tragic uh, so, and, and consequential, um, you know, obviously a deadly insurrection. It just it was really hard today uh, to take it in. So I walked away. So if any breaking <laughs> news has happened in the last few hours, I don't know about it because I, I had to walk away from my iPad. Um, you know, the polling shows us that Republicans have from the grassroots all the way up to former President Trump rewritten that day. Um, you get to believe now that it's the FBI uh, who ran a sting operation, but you also get to believe that patriotic Trump supporters were there and they were fighting for democracy and they've become unfairly held to account and they are hostages or martyrs or whatever. So it's, you get to believe anything you want. Um, it's a fact-free, all-emotion um, rewriting of history, and it's it's really um, so emblematic, right, of of the of the challenge that we face uh, in the ten months ahead to try to keep Americans on the side of reality, on the side of our system of self-governance, on the side of the truth, and um, it's it's a mighty, mighty challenge ahead, given just how much a good 40% of the country has become deranged. Um, and uh, it's, it's hard today. It's hard to, to remember. It's hard to look forward. It's, it's enraging to me uh, that people lie about this, people who know better and who know exactly what happened. Members of Congress know that the people they were facing in those hallways were not members of the FBI. So it, it's, it's such a difficult day today. Because I'm still so outraged and so hurt, um, but knowing that that they have succeeded in in lying about this and it's worked for some Americans uh, three three years on after seeing it on TV is well, it's just it's surreal. It's surreal. Yeah, um, my take is a little more optimistic, but similar. I think what we've learned in the three years is that. This wasn't a one-day insurrection. It's a rolling coup, and it's still going on. And the perpetrators are lying, and and anyone who is lying about that day is a perpetrator um, who is still trying to overturn our democracy. 
Um, so we haven't we haven't won yet. But I don't think on January 6th, we felt like we won. We felt like we succeeded in the minimal of like saying, okay, they don't get to actually steal an election. But the rift was still there and it hasn't been healed in three years. But in the subsequent time, maybe the, the guys who are lying keep losing elections. And I take a lot of comfort, no matter what the polls say, they lose election after election after election. That the 60-40 is a, is a landslide, you know, a landslide. And I, no, I'm grateful I, I am for encouraged that. by this as well. I, I mean, I'm, this, this is what I'm clinging to today on a very, yep. very dark and wet and cold and icy day in Washington on this anniversary. Yeah. You are right. You wrote about um, the slim, slim Republican majority in the House, which has gotten even smaller, I think, in a couple of days since your piece. And I think about that. I mean, the Dems have a majority in the Senate. Granted, the Senate is not functional with just the majority, but they have a majority in the Senate. They have Biden in the White House. And the GOP is talking like a party in power. They are demanding all kinds of things that they can't possibly accomplish, including demanding that the whole country ignore what it saw with its own eyes and believe something completely different, right? But they aren't that powerful. They're actually very weak in terms of their governing power. And I'd love you to talk about that, how tenuous is the hold of the GOP in the House? Right. That's what's so ironic is that what I am the most uh, afraid of is Trump's power because he leads a cult of people who believe that God has sent him, that no matter what he does, it's right, that there are even more crimes he should commit because no matter what he does, it's perfect. Um, And that or living in a reality distortion field. His power is very concerning to me because of his general election matchup polling with Biden, where he always is leading. Trump is always leading Biden. And so that is really what we have to face, you know, straight on. However, what you just noted is so interesting because the House Republican, the one branch of, you know, the one part of the government, of the Congress that they, of they control, and they don't control the White House, of course, is the House. They have a tiny majority now. It's by like two seats or so. Um, it'll become one, I believe, uh, when Bill Johnson is retired, um, uh, resigns next week to become um, head of a, of a president of a college in Youngstown, Ohio. They, they are the, the House Republican Conference is a symbolic disaster. And they deeply, deeply hate each other and just distrust each other. They are out. They believe they're going to head into the minority, that they're not going to retain their majority. And so they're out there. Each person is out for number one and out for themselves. Nobody cares about the leadership. Mike Johnson has just come to the speakership as the sort of, you know, consensus pick. But people who are in districts uh, who are going to need a lot of help from the power center in the Republican Party know that all of the money flows to Trump and Mike Johnson is not Kevin McCarthy and can't raise good money and can't come to their district because if you're in a swing district, you don't want Mike Johnson to come, you know, like be seen with you on the campaign trail because he has he's like a wacky winger and yep. um, and and a fraud and a fraud. Anyway, so 
they're really, really upset internally. And, um, and what the, the premise of my, of the column that I wrote over the holidays is that I believe that, that they so loathe each other and they so loathe their jobs right now. And we haven't even gotten into the government shutdown that's coming. I don't know if it'll happen on the January 19th deadline or the February two or three deadline, but they are trying to hold up everything over the speaker, government funding and security and military funding for Taiwan, Israel and Ukraine over this fight over the border. But we know, Edwin, that they will never compromise with Joe Biden and the Senate Democrats on any border language. Nothing will ever be good enough for them in the base. and They don't want to be seen as giving Biden a win. So they will shut the government down at least once. And to show that they're fighting this and they're fighting, you know, the, the demons of, of, you know, the, the socialist Democrats and the communists and the fascists, whatever names that, that Trump has given them. And Trump will not let them make a deal with Joe Biden. And so we're heading into this unbelievable showdown um, where, where they're going to be at each other's throats. So forgive me, I want to interrupt said, you for one second. Yeah, I don't they learn anything. I mean, how have these shutdowns no, no. worked out for them in the past? You see, that's. What, what you're asking them to do is care about their majority and care about their team, and they don't. This or Republican Party now is, is a cult of Trump, and then there's no real party, right? There's no fealty to anything. There's no principles. There's no legislation. They don't actually want to do a deal. They don't want a new health care bill. They don't want to do comprehensive immigration reform and control the border. Um, Mike Johnson is going to make a huge mistake if he gets into these negotiations he wants with Joe Biden because Biden will give him compromises on the border that Johnson can't upset, can't accept. So my premise is they are furious at each other now. They're furious at Matt Gates. The Ever Kevins are still burning up with resentment about about uh, Matt Gates and Tim Burchett and the people that, and Nancy Mace and the eight people who took down uh, McCarthy. They can't believe they haven't been punished. They haven't paid. And all of the good guys are now going to retire from the Congress. And so the, so the, the people who are left, the institutionalists in the Republican Party are just furious that these bozos forced out their, their good members and, and, and forced them to retire. So my argument is that why, if you're job searching now, would you stay until November if you plan to to leave? If you get a if you get a good offer, what, are you are you loyal to to Mike Johnson? Are you why would you stay? And so there is the possibility that they don't even make it as a majority until the election because of the dysfunction within within their ranks. Yeah, well, I think that's fascinating. And I think that um, Hakeem Jeffries is pretty savvy. I'm sure he's doing everything he can to uh, keep their uh, Republican. I mean, he doesn't have to work hard at it. They're doing it all on their own, but to keep them at each other's throats. And, um, uh, you know, I, I was I took comfort from knowing that the House is sworn in before the president. That, you know, because the, the idea that Mike Johnson would have a gavel in a, in a new, in the next version of January 6th, absolutely terrorizing me to death, right? Because he's a, he, he, you know, yeah. he's a leading power in that insurrection. But happily, a new house gets sworn in before the president gets sworn in. They'll, he won't have that power. Thank God. Um, but you're we'll saying they might sure, lose it even we'll before that. We'll have to make then. sure that the House Republicans don't, you know, don't win a majority, right? Like that. Yes. They don't think they will. But it's going to be close, and we're going to have to fight hard 
And that's part that's part of what Joe Biden is talking about. The democracy speeches, the democracy theme, January 6th, it's, it has to be a campaign of education to the American public about a rules-based system. And all of the rules Republicans continuously violate uh, and flout and, and, and refuse to, to, to follow. And, and, and that is an important conversation that we have and that Liz Cheney get out there this year and say what she said yep. in her book, which is Mike Johnson knew better. And he still said, let's do this for Trump. He knew he had lost the election and he would do this again for partisan reasons. And those voices and, the, and that, that theme about the, you know, the, the, the extent they will go to to break the system is, is so essential because I don't know a lot of Americans know who Mike Johnson is or, or, or what Liz Cheney you know, has said about him in her book. It's, it's critical. I think um, in the last three years has seen the the completion of something that's been accelerating for a while, but it is the um, crumbling, the, really the disappearance of the GOP. It doesn't exist as a political party. There's just this Trump movement. Um, and, and as you just pointed out, the folks who got there as part of the GOP are being purged now. Right, left and right from Congress, like gone. They got to go. Right. So the ones that it's just a Trump movement, um, and I, I, you know, I remember Republican leaders all my whole life, wh- whom I have had some strong policy disagreements sometimes, but oh my God, I respected them as tough, thoughtful, patriotic. Right. Anybody with those those qualities has been purged. So so I do believe and this is related to what you just said, that Liz Cheney, uh, that the Bush family, that a whole maybe Chris Christie, that a whole bunch of of people who used to be in who used to be part of what used to be the Republican Party will will will. recognize that that supporting Donald Trump is not supporting the Republican Party and stand away from him and tell America about the danger. I, I mean, I expect I not only expect that I kind of demand it. Right. And I and look back yeah. at the history of the Republican Party and say, if it meant anything to you, this is your moment. I, I completely agree. And we. um you know, we've been talking about that at the bulwark, but we anticipate that, I mean, I wrote last week that I anticipate that it's not reasonable that, to believe that Christie will come around to endorsing Biden. He doesn't want to announce that now. Um, that's fine, um, that he wants to wait a little longer while he's still, you know, pretending to run for president. But Mitt Romney's made it clear that he would never vote for Trump and that anything would be better. So I, it's clear he's going to vote for Joe Biden. Uh, obviously, the truth is that tons of Republicans are going to vote for Joe Biden. They're just not going to admit it. But we're talking about people that need to come out, Dick Cheney and Liz Cheney, uh, Mitt Romney, Adam Kinzinger, uh, Chris Christie, and like you said, the Bush family, more, more people like that. I, I hope General John Kelly can finally, now that he's gone on the record, come out and say he's going to be supporting Joe Biden, even though he disagrees with him on you know, seven to 14 policy uh, initiatives, but all of them should say they disagree with Joe Biden on policy, but that this is a vote for the system. And without it, we will no longer have any free and fair elections. Totally Trump agree will with stay you. in office or keep his family there and melt the Constitution down. And that's, I mean, that's, 
that's what I mean. I, I I think that we will have that. It's just a question of numbers, and what you and I are hoping for is is bigger numbers. But you know, I, I, I agree with you. Have at least five. I, I agree with you. I, I absolutely agree with you. I have a different question. What about the non-political, the non-politician Republicans? What about the corporate lobbying groups and the, you know, the, the ones who really have, a, who, who, frankly, who have benefited from some of the corruption? Um, but I, look, they're not all, they're like all of these people who, you know, who rep corporate America. Hmm, is is not a favorite of Joe Biden's, not a favorite of the policies. You know, the idea that, that the very, very, very wealthiest have gotten too wealthy as opposed to everybody else is a thing in the Democratic Party. I actually believe that. But I don't think that everybody who is a corporate board member or runs a major corporation in America isn't a patriot. I think they are. I think they are. I mean, is there a chance that that organized business will also stand up and say, you know what, like we saw what happened to Disney in Florida, and we don't want this to happen to us around the rest of the country. We need to stand up too for a rules-based system. There, I think it's going to be harder. I had um, this naive hope after January 6th when, you know, a bunch of Corporations said that they would no longer give PAC money to the people who, in the House Republican conference, voted to decertify the election. Yeah. <laughs> and it lasted six minutes. And so I've given up on them. My, my yeah. feeling about them is that right now they are furiously on the phone with Chris Christie, telling him to back Nikki Haley to get out of the race. They are giving her money and they want to stop Trump with everything in their being. And the minute that he wins Iowa and New Hampshire, they're going to endorse him. And they're, um, they look at their bottom line, and they, we cannot count on them. Um, occasionally, when they worry about the consumer, they do the right thing. But in terms of our government, I, I have no faith. And if, they, if I am surprised, I will be elated if I'm wrong. And they, and they end up doing the right thing. So I, and going back to, you know, the, your, your, your comment about the education that, that needs to happen, about the benefits of a rules-based society. And I just know that the, one of the biggest beneficiaries of a rules-based society is corporate America and always has been. It's very hard to run a company if you don't know, like, what are the rules going to be? You know, you can't oh. plan. You can't. So, so I think this, I think they would, hmm. They need to, uh, we need to deliver some, find the right messengers to talk to them about this. And I don't know who that is. And I don't think Jamie Diamond is it. I don't know I mean, who it is. Yeah. That, I mean, look, I know that they know that he is, a, that it's a colossal disaster. If we have a second, it really will, that it changes the country forever. If Trump has a second term, they know that. And I know that they know that and that they appreciate that. Business wants certainty. The Trump the Trump presidency was chaos for them. It was a disaster. Yes. He yep. was maligning the post office. He was going to shut down the border and declare a national emergency. He was, I mean, they, it was uh, this a trade war and that trade war. And like tomorrow, exactly. there's a different one. And yeah. I know that they know that and they don't want him to win. The problem is that they, 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 they want to, you know, get out, stay on his good side. Um, in case he does. So it's it, having them, you know, convincing them to come out 
and stand up is, is very tough. What I'm hoping um, in my optimistic moments, you know, is that there are private conversations going on around the country and that Liz Cheney and people like that are talking uh, to people about standing up this time. And I don't know, you know, we know who the Republicans could be, right? Mitch McConnell is clearly not going to be elected leader again by his conference in the Senate if Biden wins or Trump wins. Mitch McConnell's days in the leadership are over. He's the longest serving Senate leader in, in Senate history. And that's great, but it's over. And, and he knows that. And so does he want to serve out the rest of his Senate term until 2026? He could potentially walk away, um, you know, in September and, and mm-hmm. say, Donald Trump is a complete danger to this country and I'm not going to support him. And everything I've said until now was a complete lie and I'm out of here. But big corporate, big corporate leaders. I don't, you know what I mean? I don't see that. That's what I thought I'd ask. I agree with you. (laughs) Yeah. And, and I agree with you about Mitch McConnell, although January 13th, a year ago, he had his chance and he took a dive. So yeah, three years he, ago. You know. He, I know, I understand. And he, but what he did was he he assumed that the Democrats, quote unquote, would take care of the son of a bitch. That's what he said, and um, that he would get prosecuted, and Trump, you know, that Trump would just be left on the side of the road. Well, he has um, been he prosecuted, be, and, and he and right, and but that takes time. Right. And the voters, the the voters would have been mad at Mitch McConnell for finding 17 votes for conviction for six months. And they would have moved on to Ron DeSantis and their other options. But you are right. He failed us. And we we are stuck with Trump because of that decision. I I have something else I want to ask you about. I have a lot of things I want to ask you about. I mean, the last time you and I spoke, I think I shocked you a little bit by saying I thought that Trump had hit his high watermark um, and he would start to lose some support. I don't think that will cost him the nomination, though. Um, I do think it's going to be a little harder than people think, Um, particularly later, even when he's seen as unstoppable. I think the support is going to wane a little. But um, when? But well, I, it is. It's just you know, not in the Republican base. Republican base gets smaller but harder in his, you know, and more convinced of their lies. But I think it's going to be so, smaller. So he's going to be the nominee, right? You, you're saying? Yeah, you I think he's going to be the nominee. Election? But I think okay, general election is going to be very hard for him. I, I believe that, and I even think the later primaries, even though he's going to be there by himself, is the turnout's going to not be what he wants. He'll say, oh, it's the biggest turnout in the history of the world. I got more votes in this primary than anybody in the history of the world, but it'll be a lie. Um, and I and I kind of wonder, like here in the middle of the country where I am, you know, we got a bunch of Democratic governors from Kentucky to Minnesota who are hard to describe as radicals. Bashir, Pritzker, Whitmer, Evers, Waltz. They, they're sort of, you know, governing in ways that feel familiar. But like in Texas, in Florida, in Iowa, the governors can't work fast enough to demolish what you and I have understood as sort of the norms of governing forever and to put in place, you know, sort of radicalized institutions. This is a strange approach to governing for a party that calls itself conservatives. And at the bottom, I have this question, like, do they believe America has to be destroyed to be saved? Because that's what the left thought in the 1960s, and they were proven wrong. 
And I suspect that the right is doing that right now, and they're going to have to get the same message. So I, I look at the party this way. You're right when you said a few minutes ago that like there's no kind of actual GOP left. So they had no platform in 2020 because they, Trump didn't want one. So just fealty right. to the man and everything's fine. You're not allowed to support the defense of Ukraine anymore. Um, if Trump was president, as you and I have talked about, he would give Taiwan to the CCP in an hour and a half. Um, he will let Putin have all of Ukraine. And so, so, so much has changed that, that, that it's unrecognizable. But because there's no interest in governing at all, these the people who you know you have the grassroots the cult the base that loves Trump and it's a movement it, it is not a Republican yes. party no longer based yeah. on a Republican if he said tomorrow that he wants Medicare for all they would say absolutely a hundred percent he's right he uh, brilliant and so it's 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 a cult and it's based on one man so what. My colleague Jonathan last pointed out the other night when we were in discussion is that lawmakers used to have leverage over the executive, over the president, because the president, if they wanted to get something through Congress, you know, needed this give and take. Right. In, in every in both parties, there's a back and a forth. Obama fought with congressional Democrats. You know, they they tried to get cap and trade through. They got health care. I mean, it was Many, many, many negotiations and battles and lots of give and take. Trump has no interest in governing at all. He wants to do it by executive um, action or he doesn't want to do it. He just wants to bitch on Twitter and scream and shout. So he, he took four positions in 24 hours on, a, on the Bob Goodlatte immigration bill. It, yep. it, it's not about resolution. And so, so you have the party, the masses who follow him, and then you have... Um, leaders who are too afraid to say anything about it, so they just pretend. So, so that's where we are. It's, it's like they don't look at. No one in the Republican Party is looking at at um, Bashir or or Waltz and, and saying, "Oh, I wish we had a governor like that that was actually like getting stuff done and like was like a la- like a, a laboratory for new ideas. Like that would be cool." They've completely given up on this. There's no new ideas. You just deny elections. You, you, you rack up debt. You, you, you bitch about the border. You never solve it. You can't because it's a great issue. And you, you, um, you know, deny that every single economic indicator under Joe Biden is fabulous except for prices, which is global. And you just say Joe Biden's just, you know, running us into the ground and crime is higher when it's actually not. And you spread videos about stores getting ransacked you now on social media. So, th- th- like, I hope, Edwin, that these voters in these states are looking at functioning governments led by Democrats who are being normal and getting stuff done and working across the aisle and say, like, this is we need this. But yeah, there are like true Republican voters are not walking around saying, like, let's get back to that. Uh, you know what? It's a but that 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 base of the of of the Trump movement is just it's not going to grow. It's there. It's powerful. It's dangerous. It's not going to grow. And it, and it's not just that the, the, like these governors are, are doing things. Then I think people in the state won't be radicalized because of what they're doing. 
and that Republican, that Trump is a radicalizing force. He needs the chaos. He needs to tear things down. I think this is a stabilizing force. But in some of these Republican states where they have done like universal school vouchers, right, the bill is going to come due between now and the November election. Right. They, they, they've, you know, they've cut their taxes. This is the same thing that happened, you know, to Sam Brownback. It's going to happen to a bunch of other states in, in the next few months. And that people are going to go, wait, what do you mean I got to raise taxes? What, what do you mean the school in my rural community is going to close? I, I just think that, yeah, you know, reality I, I has a happen- make this connection. I, I hope that they make this connection. I just feel that the concern for me is the disconnected, ill-informed, or not informed at all, not low-information voter, no-information voter, never follows politics. And we're looking at young, Latino, Black, um, independent voters now leaving the Biden coalition. We don't know if they'll come back. Maybe they will. But for now, they're fed up. They're fed up with prices and fed up with mortgage rates and fed up with with Joe Biden and fed up with his age and fed up with crime and fed up with with the border. And they're telling pollsters they would support Donald Trump. So those are the only people I worry about. You are right. The, the base won't grow. I'm worried yeah. about the people I, who decide I worry about elections. them, too. I, I, yeah. I, I worry, too. But I think we're going to work hard to get them. But the other thing um, it is just related to what you said. I love what you guys do at the Bulwark. Um, I think you should consider finding a way to fund yourself without a paywall. Because you know what? Democracy dies behind a paywall. We have we have a real as you just said it. We have an information. Well, there's a lot. Okay, there's a lot you can read on the Bulwark for free. You have to be a plus member. That's to true. Absolutely, and I do. The other yep. stuff. Um, and I hope people in your audience will come and 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 read our stuff and visit our stuff because we are going to be doing. You know, we're going to be doing whatever we can. I'm going to work on a piece once we get out of the Republican primary, um, which we all believe will be very short and brief. Mm-hmm. Um, like, we're not going to pay attention to it after. If, if Trump sweeps in Ohio and New Hampshire, like, that's over, we're not going to be, like, worried about how, you know, whatever. if he gets a lower number of, tur- of, of you know, lower turnout in the, in the following states, he'll say it's because, you know, everyone knows he's a nominee. So, anyway, as soon as that's over and we're focused on the general, which is very soon, I'm, for one, I'm going to, I'm going to try to do a, I am going to do a piece, but I'm working on it now. Um, and I'd love your ideas, but I want to do, I want to put together a bunch of resources for people who feel like they're powerless. Like my mom, she's not on the internet. She no. literally has to, at age 82, call like the Nevada democratic party and ask, like, I, I want them to tell me what she can do. And she will stuff envelopes yep. and she'll make phone calls and she'll send $25 checks here and there, but we all have to get in the game and we have to remind people. And a lot of Americans don't know this, even ones who follow politics, that this is a six state game and only a six state game. That's and right. if you don't understand that it's Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, Nevada, and Georgia, you're, you're, you're going to waste time and you're going to waste money. And, all right, yeah. and I want us to edu- to provide this education to people who are checked in and concerned, but just feel powerless and don't know where to start. So I hope that that is helpful. a great service to everybody in great service. And I'm thrilled to know you guys are going to do it. Um, uh, and um, th- there, there's no spectators this time. The spectators are cleared from the field. Everybody is 
a player. And everybody's got to know they can play. Right. Yep. And well, we, we, have run to, over time. we have to help each and, other. I mean, even people, yep. I know you and I are in the media, but like even people who aren't in the media, we have to encourage them to, with their friends and family, we have to persuade the persuadables. We have to energize the persuadables and they're out there. And I know we're over time, but that was my final, right? There are persuadables, and that's where our energies me focus. Absolutely right. And there are people who are persuaded, but they just don't know how to help, and we have to tell them how. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. we got to get them on ramps. Everybody needs an on ramp. Well, right. all right. I love our conversations. I'm grateful to you for your time and for the work and for the care that you take to, uh, to think about these painful topics. Well, Edwin, you as well. I'm so glad to be with you and your listeners. Thank you for all you do. And we'll have a conversation again soon. Take care. Okay, you too. Bye. All right, everybody. The incomparable A.B. Stoddard. We'll take a quick break, and then I'll take your calls. Let's hear what you got to say. Edwin Eisentrath is taking your calls now at 773-763-9278. The big picture is on now. WCPT 820. Okay, today is the anniversary of what is so far the bloodiest and biggest battle in an ongoing effort to overturn our government um, the day the coup was pushed back from within the Capitol. Unbelievable. Love to hear your thoughts, starting, Jim, with you. Uh, Happy New Year to you and yours, Edwin. First of all, you you were talking about about generations, and I I think one of the most interesting was the lost generation. His individualism was the toast of the the town in in that generation. Then you move into the fascist uh, 30s, where these groups need symbols and they need this infallible leader that they'll follow until they have to shut their mortal coil and they go back to democracy, Allah, Germany, Italy, and France. And once that leader is no longer with us, they revert right back to democracy. And, uh, this is, uh, as Biden, as our president said yesterday, this is comparable almost to Nazi Germany as far as this group of people that want to uh, to stop uh, the American uh, our American history and its tracks. Any, anyway, Edwin, that's my comments, and you have a great New Year, and good to hear you back. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Jim. I really appreciate it. Um, yeah, crazy, isn't it? Uh, Paul, what do you think? Happy New Year, Edwin. Happy New Year to you. Uh, I, I just wanted to tag on to the last comment of your guest that, that it's a six-state race, um, Yeah, which actually kind of points out that the need for the Electoral College is the electoral process is really not now – no longer, because remember, it was supposed to be to make sure that the small states were still in play. Well, the process has become to the point where it's six large, you know, large and medium states that are that are deciding the the, the, the outcome. And so, I don't think that the uh, electoral process is is um, really turning out to be what it was intended for. But the point being. 
I'm really flabbergasted, I guess, about how pundits, uh, really even on, uh, on, on all channels, MSNBC, everywhere, talking about how the Supreme Court, what they will be thinking about ruling on Trump's eligibility in Colorado and in Maine, Colorado mostly, and as if they need to, uh, because they're also going to be ruling on, on, his, on whether he's immune, that the, the, the court, uh, you know, kind of wants to cut an, they need to cut a slice and even break here, you know, so that it doesn't look like they're being too favored. Baloney! Rule on the law, rule on the Constitution. I want to see if, if this court, this sort of, this so-called conservative court, this originalist court, is really going to rule on federalism. And whether the state of Colorado, it's not about, it's the question is, remember, John Roberts said in, uh, if you if you read the, the Stephen Vladek book about the, the shadow docket, John Roberts said, has said, uh, or uh, Professor Vladek says in that book, John Roberts says, we don't consider issues, we consider questions. Okay, well, let's talk about the question of the power of the state of Colorado. Does the state of Colorado have the power within its, within, is it within, within its powers to decide who can be on a presidential ballot, which they're not required to have. Remember, Edwin, we don't have a constitutional right to vote for president. No state is required to have a ballot for the president, for the presidency. That's up to the state legislature. And so I would think that it's, they should be considering that question, not, oh, how do we make sure that we don't want yeah. to look like we're being one-sided? Well, well, Paul, you know? I- uh, weirdly, I actually think that is what they're going to do. I think they're going to take this question seriously for all kinds of reasons. Um, and, you know, I, honestly, um, I, it would be a relief if Trump were thrown off the ballot, yeah, but it would be chaos to have him on the ballot in some states and off in others. It would give him something to rally around and it would, I mean, for, just in terms of the politics it's actually better for Democrats if he's on the ballot. Turnout will be at an all-time high. If he's off the ballot, turnout will be low. I mean, it's just um, – but the law is clear, and I agree with you about the law. And anybody who's bellyaching that applying that law will leave people desperately disappointed should uh, remember that we that, – that the law – means that we voted for Al Gore, we voted for Hillary Clinton, and they didn't get to be president. Okay, sometimes the law is deeply disappointing. And you've pointed by complaining about the Electoral College. You know what? That law and the law that sets the Senate the way it, the way it is, um, the Electoral College and the Senate, these are deeply undemocratic institutions, but they're the law. And when, when we lose, we don't go burn down the Capitol. Right? right? So um, uh, if the Supreme Court throws him off the ballot, anybody who then said, you know, picks up that pitchfork and starts to storm the, the Capitol again, they belong in jail again. Um, well, yeah. It's a, it's, and, and by the way, yeah. it wouldn't be the Supreme Court throwing him off the ballot. It would be the, the administrative law processes in the state of Colorado that would yes, say, but the Supreme no, Court would no, allow no. that process to move forward. Exactly. That's, yeah. and, and here's the thing. Is in, in originalist terms, you, you know, you don't need to be uh, on the ballot, so to speak, in every state. You just need to win 270 electoral votes. Yeah. I mean, I, I doubt that Donald Trump would give a, a, a rip if he was off the ballot in Washington State. I mean, he got absolutely smeared last night. Every time he's right, watches. What doesn't matter? Right, but it gives him something to campaign about in the other states. 
You know, right. I mean, let's well, throw him off fine. the ballot you know in Arizona, in Georgia, in Pennsylvania. Let's throw him off the ballot in those swing states. That well, would be a uh, great choice. And he's a yeah. victim. He can, if he wants to spell victim, 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 that's his brand. I'm a victim. The Trump brand is I'm a victim. I'm a victim. And you know, as my late father said, and I, he, he's a punk with a chip on his shoulder. And I said, what, what's that? He's a Dad? crook. That, what do you mean? It, his he, brand he, is a, he's a crook, Paul. Let's just, yes, right. he's a crook and a thief and a danger yep. to our democracy. And I, you know what? And everything else comes second. Anyway, it's great to talk to you. Happy new year. I got a bunch of other callers in a little you. bit of time, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad you sound well. And, um, we have a heck of a year, so I hope you stay. Well. We do. Yep. Right. Take care. Thank you. All right. Um, Tom, you're next. Thank you for taking my call. Uh, good conversation regarding the, uh, uh, so-called Supreme court. I, I really think, uh, they're, uh, just a, a, a total mess. And it all starts with, uh, what they call that fuzzy thing called citizens United. They are bought and paid for, unfortunately, no matter. And, and they lied going through the process, each one of them, when it goes back to Roe v. Wade. I, I mean, it's ridiculous. People, people don't know right from wrong anymore, and I'm sorry, but the, the re- main reason I'm calling in what really has my blood pressure to a peak, and this does not, there's an oath, and it is included in the Illinois filings for the uh, presidential candidate. It's an oath that you will not uh, overturn or uh uh, try to subvert the election results. Now, this is not new. This did not come up just because of the insurrection that happened. This has been part of the filings for the state of Illinois for years. Now, this ex-president, now, when he filed in Illinois, refused to sign it. How, how can anyone with any kind of a brain defend that? Right. So just so everybody knows what you're talking about, um, different states do their uh, presidential. Um, uh, uh, th- they ask candidates for different things in order to get on the ballot, a certain number of signatures, um, a filing. And Illinois has a loyalty oath, a loyalty oath. Correct. Uh, Correct. That's part of the that's that's part of the uh, package. Um, not a requirement, but it's a it's a voluntary thing and it's Correct. been there for a long time. And right. um, it, it, Donald exactly. Trump signed it the last two times he ran, but he didn't exactly. sign it this time. And he didn't sign it this time, probably because um, it is, after all, a, a, a an official filing with the state. Um, it is a it is a. a an oath, you are promising something. And so it, it, well, the speculation, no one will um, confirm this. The reporters couldn't find anybody. But the speculation is, of course, that he creates another legal hurdle because the moment he signs it, um, the, the things that he does uh, could get him. He could get thrown off the ballot for lying in that oath, not just for um, uh, he's also being uh, there's a there's a 14th Amendment case in Illinois to keep him off the ballot for the insurrection. This would just be another cause for keeping him off. And and you're right to point out he didn't sign it because he has been involved in the tr- attempt to overthrow the government of the United States, not by legal means, not through an election, but through violence and intimidation and law breaking. Correct. 
and and like before you uh, your your you were talking with your previous uh, caller, and it it's it, uh, he's had no accountability, and he really needs a day of reckoning uh, and karma. Everything needs to come down on him, but he makes money, and it just blows my mind out of playing the victim. I, I, I just well, don't understand that. Please give to me or they're going to, you know, do this, do this, give to me. And these people are giving him money. He's a grifter people, and people are falling for it. And you know what? The same um, exactly. It, so I, I feel bad for him. On the other hand, at some point, you know, there's enough information out there if they want it. If they want to be suckers, I, I, I feel bad for them. But suckers, they the, are. The, in the meantime, exactly. the rest of the country, reckoning is coming. We are going to do Good. the work. Good. He is not going to win this next election. He will be found guilty. He will. Um, uh, I don't think he's going to go to jail. That's too complicated. But house arrest in Mar-a-Lago with one of those nice bracelets on his ankle. That take away his phone. You know, um, it's coming. It's coming. And uh, that's because we are not going to rest. While his partisans are out there lying and reinventing history and pretending that January 6th was a friggin' picnic, while they're doing that, outrage, um, the well, rest of that, us are working. That day that that happened on January 6th, when I saw what happened, it literally turned my stomach because I remember touring that, those buildings with, with Every my American uncle. has done that. Yep. My, my father fought in, in the Pacific in World War II. He fought in Korea, and he was in, in a little bit uh, with Vietnam. My uncle that gave us the tour lived in Hagerstown, mm-hmm. uh, fought in the Battle of the Bulge. He uh, was part of uh, Dachau when they, when they opened that camp they liberated up. it, and yep. Yes, all all my my father and all my uncles fought and 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 bled and and and, and sacrificed and and to attribute to them when I turned eighteen I volunteered when mm-hmm. when I saw what happened on on January sixth that day I was totally disgusted I was sickened sickened yeah so don't let anybody tell you don't let anybody tell you that it was a picnic. That they were very good people who just wanted to save their democracy. Nonsense. Nonsense. And you know what? Then he he should have had his his so-called rally, then have it at a different day, a different time. It was all He had it in order to summon the mob. It was exactly known this now. Have your your rally, your, your, your big smile rally. Have that some other day and some other time. Unbelievable. We can't do that, Tom. He was doing it to overturn the election. This was not, this was premeditated. We know what it was. That's why he's been um, uh, indicted. And, um, you know, when, when, uh, when the wheels of justice finally churn through, and they will as long as it takes, um, provided he doesn't get in the White House and stop it. Um, well, maybe, I'm confident maybe, justice will be done. Maybe he could use some of that Chinese money he's been uh, uh, scooping up over the years to uh, buy his way out. No, but, but he's. There, we are going to. We are going to. We're going to Go hold ahead. as a nation of laws, Tom. We are not going to let them lie to us about who we are. We are not going to let them tell us that. Oh, I don't know. There's no climate change in Florida by law. 
right? Uh, we're not going to like people are not going to be fooled by this nonsense forever. We and, and the majority of Americans aren't fooled today. Right. We have well, to we but we have to do our job. It's our I, time I, to step up. I, I call in uh, to another radio station that's I'm in the Indiana uh, uh, and it's been around WJOB since for about 100 years this year now. And the owner now, the new owner, he's, he's very good. He's very uh, even minded. He, but he, he lets there he lets these characters and one of them calls himself Mad Mac. So I don't need to say any more, but I call in and I speak my mind and I don't I'm not rude. I'm not ignorant. And the owner lets me speak my mind. And I finally had to tell him, hey, I am not going to devolve and and turn into because I am retired now and I have grandkids. My wife's just a, a retired uh, preschool teacher and, and she uh, beat cancer. So we want to enjoy our life. I said I called in and I said, I refuse to be, turn into an angry old man out of some of these inane, um, just uh, uh, things that these people come up with. Uh, hate, hate. Let's hate this today. Let's hate this next week. Agenda that it'll it'll eat you up. I, I refuse to to be that person. And after calling in, these brain stems were calling in and going after me. Or they, they wanted my man card, basically, for not not being man enough to be mad or mean. <laughs> so, it just tells you in and of itself who these people are. Yeah, oh, I'm angry. Um, I'm determined. But uh, we're going to be smart about it. And we're going to not just, you know, I mean, I feel bad for the people who are, you know, again, fools and giving Donald Trump their money. But that's the way it is. Hey, Tom, thank well, you for calling. I got a couple other callers. I'm going to try one and real get quick to. one. It's, it's very ironic. Like you said, you feel sorry for the people that are being duped. The same people that give lots of money are the same people that are compl- that are blaming one person, Joe Biden, for uh, inflation and gas prices. Well, then, you know what? Uh, help your pocketbook out and don't don't give it to to this don't give the yeah but the prices are coming down gas prices are down um joe biden has done a phenomenal job managing the economy so i think i think the thing there is just to call the lie a lie the economy is by almost every measure better than it's ever been um and, and people are doing better than they were it's just nonsense, and we can't let them pretend that uh, a great economy is a bad economy. Anyway, thank you for calling, Tom. Take care. Appreciate it. Steve, we got three minutes. Um, so I guess if you're, if you're not, Steve, I don't think I'm going to get to you. But, Steve, um, you have the floor. All right. So a few things. One, it will be interesting. If they do rule that Donald Trump um, can be on the ballot, then the intellectual gymnastics required to rationalize that, you know, given their previous rulings and where, you know, the conservative side of the court stands in terms of states' rights to conduct elections as they will, you know, for uh, for forever. You know, these, these are the states uh, that have been uh, telling us that we have a right to conduct elections and we therefore have adopted policies that have disenfranchised young people, people people of color, poor people. So now all of a sudden, uh, no, you don't have a right to have whatever policy you want in terms of you know your, how your state conducts an election. So it's going to be really interesting to uh, how the conservatives on the court, like I said, do this sort of intellectual gymnastics. 
Uh, I am a little bit worried in that I, I would lose no sleep if Donald Trump was disenfranchised, <laughs> to use their terminology, in Colorado and Maine or other states. But I do worry somewhat uh, in that I, I agree with you, the precedent that it would set, because there's a wacko somewhere in Wyoming, in Georgia, Mississippi, Alabama, whatnot, who will tomorrow uh, decide to forward legislation or decide to pressure someone, a secretary of state, depending upon what state we're talking about, to... Steve, I think I've lost you. Oh, all right. Um, well, shoot, we have um, we lost Steve. And I know there are a couple other people, but we are really like up against the time. So I'm going to use this time uh, just to thank you guys for sticking with me for another year. Um, I hope you had a happy uh, new year. I hope you got some rest over the holiday um, because we're going to need it. We're going to need it. Again, there is no room for spectators. Everyone has to do something. And every, you know, one of the reasons I love radio is it's free. You guys get to listen to it for free. But what you learn here, share. The, it, the, whether it's, you know, following the people who are my guests and sharing what they write, or God, go take my Substack, which you can find, share it broadly. This is a time to get information into the hands of Americans, you know, as much as possible, and then to motivate them to help people find the truth, use it, vote. Nothing is going to matter if we lose this this year. It's all on the line. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I will see you next week.